0: you sappy music hey there fighting for the faith podcast listener just want to remind you at the top of the program here that fighting for the faith is listener supported radio you know no the music isn't working kill the music yeah sorry I see other guys who use sappy music I you know Bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith Tuesday, August 16th, 2011 Sorry, I I had something come up yesterday And I was not able to uh, get a Fighting for the Faith uh, recorded Uh, Let's just say it has something to do with the research I've been doing lately I'll share some of it with you At least uh, some of the uh, primary source documents I think it will be worth passing along Toward the end of this hour, excuse me, I'm going to enjoy some green tea here. Hang on a second here. Ah, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We well do the politically incorrect thing and. You know, name names and let you hear what people are saying and do the comparative work and say, "Well, is that really what the Bible says or not?" And um, it seems like the majority of the time, it's like, you know, that's not what the Bible says. And uh, and and we also record the train wreck, the slow motion train wreck that has become American evangelicalism in America, and while in Western civilization as a whole, we've uh, we've got some serious serious problems. And uh, so we will pray that God restores the church, brings the church to repentance and back to his word, back to the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins. And that pastors would get busy with preaching the word. Um, Yeah. There's, there's some pretty important stuff going on there in God's word. And well, that's what they're tasked to do, you know, they, 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 (laughs) the reality is, is that so many pastors nowadays, um, uh the, the list of things that they preach on really actually fits under maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, as if somehow the goal of the christian life is self actualization and uh, well it's not <laughs> the goal of the christian life is not self actualization so anyway uh, so um just by way of you know kind of preparing uh for uh, later in the in this hour um, I I've been doing a. It seems like my perennial, constant, uh, companion, uh, in my research is always fascism, and uh, and it, oh, man, oh, it, it, this it's you can always oh, man whenever I'm uh, researching fascism, I always end up having like the worst nightmares. But um, it just strange stuff, strange stuff. Anyway. So uh, what I'm going to be doing um, in the uh, I'm going to be reading an article um, from 1989. It was an interview with Peter Drucker that Peter Drucker uh, did with Christianity Today and their leadership journal. The name of the interview is Managing to Minister an Interview with Peter Drucker. I'm going to read this at the end of the hour. And um, I, I want you to. I'm going to read the whole thing. Last week, I read a um, a New York Times article that was published uh, the uh, like just a week and a half after Drucker died, and uh, I think it was November two thousand and five, uh, and and it it cites some stuff from this article itself. So I'm going to actually read to you this article. And, uh, and uh, one of the things I've been working on is a, uh, a journal article for um, the uh, Lutheran Theological Journal by the name of Logia. And I've been asked by the editors of uh, Logia to uh, you know, take this, uh, some of the stuff that I've been uh, reading, uh, researching, and re- working on regarding uh, fascism and post-modernity and uh, take a look at uh, and you know, kind of do the overlay with uh, the seeker-driven movement. And uh, and so what's f- fascinating is is that when you do the research, they're they're actually. Yeah, I know this is going to just sound ridiculous, but it's true um, that there's a connection. There really is a connection, worldview wise. Now, um, the problem, yeah, you know, one of the things that's really a bummer is that. Um, is that every time I talk to somebody about fascism, I have to actually define terms for them because the the, the uh, historic understanding of the meaning of the word fascist has been lost uh, since World War II. Fascists, uh, fascism has become synonymous with uh, Nazism or uh, the skinheads or you know some far right kind of thing. And fascism isn't any of that. Uh, now, granted, the Nazis were fascists, but not all fascists were Nazis. So. Fascism is actually a worldview. It's it's a philosophical worldview, and it it uh, it really really truly has its um, it, it has its its origins in counter enlightenment philosophies. Uh, think uh, think Rousseau, think Nietzsche, uh, Kierkegaard. Uh, you know think the think about the rom- uh, romanticism. And, uh, and and uh, and in existentialism, all that kind of, stuff. and it's a coalescing of all of these counter enlightenment philosophies into a unified worldview, and um, and and the reason why this is so important for us as well for you know, I know there's a, a lot of you guys who are listening that are not Americans, uh, but those of us in the in the Western republics, those of us in the Western democracies, um, the reason why this is important to us is because uh the united states in particular was really founded upon the uh the, the 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 philosophical understanding of humans in what's called liberal humanism which was really created by or you know you know kind of the thing that was you know really in the waters in, in the political thinking in the thinking of the founders of of the american revolution uh, Madison, uh, Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, uh, Franklin, all of these guys, they were, well, for lack of a better word, they were Enlightenment rationalists. And so their view of the individual is is that uh, the in, it is self-evident that the individual has particular rights, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, um, the counter-Enlightenment philosophers deny that uh they have a completely different view of the individual in fact um counter enlightenment of philosophers uh you know you, you go into hegel and well hegel is still kind of sort of enlightenment it, it you know if you if you believe it's possible to create a uh, a, a, a a deductive uh system on metaphysics but uh, you know, i don't think you can anyway uh so uh anyway uh, counter enlightenment philosophers, um, which are, which is really what uh, the uh, 20th century fascists were imbibing on, counter enlightenment philosophy of Nietzsche, of, of Heidegger, of uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, Kierkegaard, uh, uh, you say Feuerbach and other guys like this. Uh, the idea is, is that the individual doesn't exist. Uh, the that exa- I mean, literally, it, the individual does not exist the the only thing that exists is the community, and the community is the the entity that decides uh and shapes individuals decides what they you know their their utility to the community and other things like that and uh and so anyway so he, here's here's the long and the short of it is is that peter drucker um he was he um let's just say that he has far more in common with the fascists than most people think. In fact, he you know, he, he renames his philosophy, communitarianism. That's one of the ways of putting it. Um, but I, I, I really think communitarianism and Peter Drucker's philosophy still really falls into the broader spectrum of, of what was known in the early 20th century as fascism. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, you, a denial of individual existence and that the community is the thing that is the governing, uh, the thing that is important. Um, it's a, a, it's a, you, you take away a focus on the transcendent, um, you know, transcendent moral truth claims, transcendent, uh, things like that. The transcendent gets replaced with the imminent, imminent being the things that we experience in the here and the now. Uh, it, you know, so when we hear a sermon about being a good parent, uh, managing your finances, uh, if experiencing joy at work, those are all things that have to do with imminent needs imminent needs of the body here and now whereas when somebody's preaching and proclaiming god's word and teaching uh, what god has revealed about eternity um uh, about him the you know the eternal transcendent being uh those are things that are not imminent but they are transcendent they 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 encompass all of us and in and in, in so anyway um the fascists were notorious for uh their uh, imminence over transcendence in fact um the nazis in particular the reason why they hated 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 uh the jews was because the jews were responsible for that uh, for giving us that pernicious god who said thou shalt not and expected everybody to swear allegiance to him rather than to the community and so uh you know so the jews were responsible for Giving us this transcendent God, and uh, that's one of the you know, that's one of the main reasons why the Nazis really hated uh, Jews is because uh, it it went against their understanding of community and the imminent as opposed to the transcendent. They actually philosophically denied the existence of transcendent moral truth claims that were binding on all humanity. Um, and so, and then you have the subjective over the objective. Um, it's this idea that truth is experienced subjectively and this idea of objective truth is just like, what, you know, whoever heard of something like that. So anyway, um, so the funny thing is, is that when you look at fascism or you define fascism according to with the idea that it's a philosophical worldview, okay. Um, I I actually make the claim that Peter Drucker, who was the, um, uh, (laughs) The creator, if you would, of the uh, of the purpose driven church model. Now, by the way, you, know, you think well, Rick Warren created? It. No, actually, no, he didn't. Uh, Rick Warren was an uh, was a very astute student of uh, Peter Drucker, and uh, and uh, he's and so was Hybels, and so was Bob Buford. So, uh, yeah, so we talk about uh, Peter Drucker from time to time. We mention him here. Uh, it's important to note that. Peter Drucker is really the one who created the purpose-driven church model. It's uh, the purpose-driven church model is an adaptation of the uh, of the corporate model that Drucker invented in the 1950s. And Drucker when he put together that corporate model, uh it was really designed to create these little micro communities uh, that people can feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And it sounds familiar. Anyway, so what I'm going to do today is uh, at the uh, tail end of this hour, I'm going to read Drucker's interview that he gave with Christianity Today in April of 1989. April of 1989 is entitled Managing to Minister. And I just want you to hear for yourself Peter Drucker discussing what it is that he believes. Um what he thinks is important, and what you're going to find is, as as I read this 1989 article to you, so much of the jargon that we hear from these seeker-driven and purpose-driven pastors is here in the mouth of Peter Drucker himself. And so uh, it, it's just a good historical lesson, and I want you all to hear it so that you can uh, you know, apply yourself to it. And then it, 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 I have a request. I have a huge Huge, huge request, and it's kind of an odd one. Is there anybody in the Fighting for the Faith audience that um, is very conversant with and knows uh, really well uh, the writings and philosophy of Soren Kierkegaard? Now, I am not, no, not a Kierkegaardian scholar at all. Kierkegaard's existentialism has never appealed to me, ever. I you know and i consider kierkegaard in, in the realm of the irrational philosophers uh, but at the same time i understand some of his general thinking that but if there's somebody out there who is a a good who who's who like loves kierkegaard or is very fluent in kierkegaard i have a um i i have a question that i need answered and i need somebody who knows who who is who's familiar with kierkegaard's writings from the primary sources. So if you you know if you are that person or you know somebody who I can contact, email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com and put Kierkegaard scholar even if even if you're not a scholar just put Kierkegaard scholar as the subject heading because uh, there's something I'm trying to track down just, just you know, let's you know let's just put it that way. So I, I need some help. Anyway, so uh, here's what we're gonna talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Obviously, we're gonna do the thing uh, with uh, managing an minister minister. With uh, a Drucker's interview, we're going to do that at the end of this hour. Um, I've got uh, to kind of to begin things off. I've got a um, a word of knowledge. Apparently, the Holy Spirit has spoken to Melissa Fisher again. We've again. There's only like a hundred and something people who viewed this video, and so one of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith as a public service, you know, to the folks there at Extreme Prophetic. Um, is you know when they get these words of knowledge, I mean, you know, you just they don't know who this is for. And if only a hundred people have viewed it, well, then you know, they may not be casting a broad enough net. So we rebroadcast some of these words of knowledge so that um, people can well <clears throat> make sure that they don't miss any messages. You know, can, can, I guess Melissa Fisher is kind of like an answering machine for the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit uh, is trying to get a hold of you. But apparently you're not available, so she's the answering machine. So you know, I'm sorry, but so and so isn't home right now. Please leave a message. And, and Melissa Fisher is the answering machine for the Holy Spirit. So we gotta pass that information along to uh, you. It's a service that we do. Um, I've got i um, <laughs> I've got an Eric Dykstra video that, that I'm gonna play the audio for, and the name of it is is that Eric Dykstra uh, bribing people to come to church with beep. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, he he's bribing people to come to church with beep. Yeah, y- y- you got to hear the video for yourself. That's all I can say. Um, um, I, Phil Johnson has uh, weighed in at the Pyromaniacs blog uh, regarding um Mark Driscoll's um visions that he that he gets the the very graphic visions. The name of the uh, uh the uh the blog post by Phil Johnson at the Pyromaniacs blog is entitled. Pornographic divination. And, uh, yeah, worth passing along here. Um, so we've got that. Oh, and I've got news regarding the Crystal Cathedral. Apparently, the uh, Roman Catholic Archdiocese down there in Orange County is super de duper serious about, uh, is that really a, did I really say super de duper? Man. <sighs> <sighs> I'm just getting more irrelevant by the moment anyway. I'm 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 sorry. I'm just very very disappointed in myself that I said that. Anyway, <laughs> but they they I mean they're serious. They are really 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 serious about uh, wanting to purchase the Crystal Cathedral and they um uh, they, they they're they've kind of um they've sweetened the kitty if you would uh, in, in some extremely exorbitant amount of millions of millions of dollars that they're willing to pay in cash for the Crystal Cathedral, which I just think would be hilarious if that's what ends up happening. So we'll take a look at that. And then for our sermon review today, it's not really a sermon review. What we're going to be listening to is a, um, a series of lectures presented at Seattle Pacific University discussing Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. And I'm playing this because each and every one of these professors kind of uh, takes the, uh, the Rob Bell's book from a different position and each one of them has some things that are well eh, well problematic. So we're going to take a listen to that because I think it gives you an idea of what um what right now is happening scholarship wise in American evangelical uh university. So uh worth passing along. So that's what we're going to do today. So uh you know fuzzy bunny slippers if you have them if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Don't 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 uh, abuse that gift that God has given us. Uh, that's silly. Um, you don't want to be enslaved to a gift. And you know the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. So um, yeah, fuzzy bunny slippers, if you have them and it's not too hot in your neck of the woods, if you want to listen while on the treadmill, don't have a problem with that, or driving, uh, please take the proper safety precautions. Uh, and if you want to listen to Fighting for the Faith at work, please, please, please keep in mind that Fighting for the Faith has been proven to decrease productivity. So, uh, you know, it's just... It is absolutely true. You may not want to let your boss know you're listening at work. So, all right. So we're going to dive into the program proper. <laughs> uh, yeah, that can mean only one thing. It's time for a video from the... Uh... Extreme prophetic, folks. Here is another word of knowledge that apparently has uh, fallen the uh, Holy Spirit's answering machine, Melissa Fisher, there at xbmedia.com, regarding wealth transference. uh, Here's what the Holy Spirit apparently uh, told Melissa Fisher.
1: Hey, everyone. God gave me a word um, actually, wow, an amazing word about
0: wow. Yeah, wow.
1: Wealth transference.
0: Wealth transference. Okay.
1: And what he said is there are a few of you out there that are waiting for investments. They're-
0: okay. So, if you're waiting for an investment, this this is a this is a message from the Holy Spirit. Well, that's supposedly for you, but don't worry, Melissa Fisher. She's the Holy Spirit's official answering machine. So. Um, this is just think of it as like beep. Here's what the Holy Spirit said to you.
1: These amazing investments that you've made, and you're getting ready to see the wealth to come, and there is an excitement that's come because you're like, yes, it has come to pass as God has said. But He wants me to bring to your attention a few things.
0: Uh, okay. Uh oh. So, this isn't all good news. If this is you, I, yeah, there, there's some bad news associated with the good news.
1: He gave me the picture of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Uh-huh. And as they were coming out of Egypt, there was a wealth transference that happened. Yeah. All the Egyptians were giving them their gold and their silver and their yeah. supplies yeah. as they were leaving. Uh-huh. But he wants you to, to remember that after the wealth transference, there was a wilderness.
0: Oh, okay. So... You, you might want to write this down. So right after the wealth transference takes place, that you're so excited about, you expect a wilderness. I mean, put it. In fact, you know, if you, if you have the data as to when the wealth transference is going to hit your bank account, you might want to write on the cal calendar. Wilderness begins now. Yeah. Okay. So write this down on your calendar.
1: There was a testing period that happened to see what was going to happen and what was in their hearts. And as we know how the story goes, they end up in that time of testing bowing down to their money in the form of a golden calf. But we had also said to me,
0: Okay, this is bad. Okay, so yeah, oh man. Okay, so not only you you need to write on your calendar, wilderness begins like now, um, if you know the date of when the wealth is going to be transferred into your account. But you also have to say, beware of worshipping the wealth. Okay. So you, you need to put – what you might want to do is go out and if you have any like post-it notes or those things that you could put on your mirror. Yeah. You, you want to put this in, in front of your face somewhere where you can see it to constantly be reminding of Today, remember to not worship your wealth. Okay.
1: Was, the wealth transference is not the promised land wants to tell you that he may transfer that wealth but you got to remember that that in and of itself wasn't the promised land
0: okay so and don't yeah again post it notes will help here put on the post it note don't confuse wealth with promised land so you don't want to worship it and you don't want to confuse it with the promised land okay
1: so many of us can think, oh, my gosh, my ship's come in, and everything is going to be great. But that wasn't the promised land.
0: Okay, now you're confusing me. How do ships get into the promised land? I, 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 is there a waterway that they – maybe it's a lake. I, these these words from God can really be confusing, don't you think?
1: Because in the promised land, they actually had everything that they needed yeah. already there. Yeah. Houses they didn't build. Vineyards they didn't plant. yeah. So he wants you to understand that this wealth transference, Uh the heart of it is the rebuilding of the kingdom.
0: Oh,
2: to
1: not look to that as Uh,
0: the rebuilding of the kingdom. How does the rebuilding if, if it's. I'm confused
1: as your savior, because it's a fine line we walk. If you do, you may end up like the Israelites bowing down to it. He is happy to do it. It is his good pleasure. It is scripture that he's going to do it. Right. But he wants you to be very, very careful yeah. with once you receive it, what ends up happening after that. Right. And so be blessed in what he's releasing. But remember, keep your eyes where they belong. And remember, it itself is not the promised land.
0: Okay. Great advice sir, Melissa. You know, that, that's... a. Now, that's a powerfully practical word that uh, you've given us there. Yeah, thank you. I just, you know, I... It's, a lot. it's a lot. Moving it's along.
3: A lot. It's a lot. It's a lot.
0: Doing the white man overbite. And the Muppet Dance.
4: Pastor and servant. We like We call it Pastor and Servant. We call it Pastor and
0: Servant. servant all right okay so that can mean only one thing we're gonna talk a little bit about eric dykstra apparently eric dykstra has engaged (laughs) as recently as easter of this year in using well bribing people to come to church using um well it's probably best if i let um uh the folks there at uh you know kelly and eric dykstra explain um and by the way, I didn't do the sound editing on this particular video. This is from Ringo TV. Uh, they have a, U- a YouTube channel. And, and I think they wanted to make a point, so they took particular words and then repeated them. And I'm not going to take that away from them because I think the repeated words kind of make the point. But uh, here we go.
5: There's a metro area church that's using electronic devices to lure people to its Easter services. Here's Carol Evans' Boazhang.
6: The lights are up, the stage is
2: set, and the chairs are almost in place. This is like the Super Bowl of church,
0: so... That would be Kelly Dykstra getting ready for the Super Bowl of church, known as uh, Easter Sunday.
2: We're just gearing up. The Crossing Church in Elk River has many seats to fill this Easter weekend. And they have a very unique way of doing it.
5: 3D TVs, we got Nintendo 3DS, my kids are huge DS fans. They are bribing church people
3: to, to come to church. So. No,
0: no, 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 no I, I know you're thinking, oh, come on, Chris. That's the media spin on what's going on here, that the folks there at the crossing in Elk River that they're bribing people to come to church that the media made that up this is their negative spin i mean because everybody knows that the mainstream media hates christians and so they're trying to make kelly and eric dykstra look bad no that's not what's going on we continue
2: they are bribing people to come to church they
0: are bribing people to come to church i have no problem bribing people i have no problem bribing people that would be uh that's eric dykstra so the media is not the one who came up with the phrase they're bribing people to come to church that would be eric dykstra
3: i have no problem bribing people bribing people bribing people
0: with uh, i'm just i'll be crass with crap (laughs) oh man so um there it is uh, eric dykstra is bribing people to come to church yeah.
4: in order to meet christ
0: the bribes may be working just six years
2: ago when the church started 200 people showed up for a sermon Now, nearly 3,000 people attend, and they hope more come this year. They even spent $8,000 on giveaways to make it happen. But church leaders say it's not just a gimmick. It's a tool to get people in the door.
3: It's awkward to say, hey, come to my church. It just feels weird, and you don't want to, like, twist somebody's arm. And so to kind of alleviate all that weirdness, what we have done is said, hey, if you bring your friend to church, they might potentially win a 3D television, a 3D DS, or a 3D movie ticket package.
2: Churches all over the state have had trouble with attendance, but Crossing says they've been growing because they are taking action.
0: That's right, because they're bribing people with...
5: It's a challenge that every church faces. I think just sometimes churches choose to sit and let it be what it is and hope that people come in, and then there are the crazy ones like us, there are the crazy
7: ones like us, there are the crazy ones like us that just do all kinds of (laughs) insane things
5: to really get them in.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's called bribing them. So, I mean, there you go. I mean, bribing people to come to church. So, um Yeah, you know, I mean, just I mean, I'm, and
2: last year, three thousand people attended their Easter service where they gave away cars and this year, they expect that number to double to six thousand. Pastor Eric says many of the families who came during the big giveaways usually came back for another service
0: that's right because I mean I mean stay there long enough i mean you, you might win a you know all expensive paid all expenses paid trip to Tahiti or something I mean. Yeah, you, know, you just never know what's going to happen there at the Crossing Church. Well, the, but then again, I'm sure that the giveaway is not for the people who are partners there at the church, but only for the uh, the the the, the uh, schlubs who showed up. This that the, that was a real first time attending. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> nothing like bribing people to come to church. I mean, uh, <clears throat> the ends justify the means, right? Um. <laughs> If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
6: Relevance Shmelevance, we preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
5: It's... Monty Python's
4: Flying Circus Church. Hey! Do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns, they are righteous puns. Piety puns Sinner, saint, sinner, saint Prayers lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like Slow down And be like, no And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants You know, so much holiness, holiness Just praying all the time Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester, Just like Esau Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too! Make your babies run abnormally fast! They'll be as fast as Elijah! People watch them running and think they're Elijah! They'll race as fast as Elijah! In a race with the actual Elijah! And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel! Hey, go with the for sure thing! Don't gavel on your afterlife! Jesus! Try Bible Tours! The energy that will make you holy!
0: Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So, the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, and once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to FightingForTheFaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. <laughs> All right, we're back. Beware of pastors bribing people to come to church. Yeah, yeah. The ends do not justify the means. There's usually something going wrong there. Just a reminder fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue bringing this important outreach to you and to the world if you don't already partner with us financially please do so and yeah, the summer months are just oh. <laughs> yeah have mercy on us please anyway the way you can support us is uh, visit our website fightingforthefaith.com when you get there you'll see two friendly yellow buttons one says donate the other says join our crew when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute six dollars ninety-five cents to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith and pirate Christian radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box five zero eight, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. Dun, dun, dun. all right from the uh christian post headline reads crystal cathedral bid raised to 53.6 million that's right <laughs> the roman catholic di- <laughs> this is a the story cracks me up because uh, robert shuler was the epitome of relevance and the he was one of the pioneers of uh of seeker driven type of uh of church and and you know, capitulating to the culture. Well, well, he's now as relevant as well um, a 1960s um, Volkswagen Beetle. I mean, I, those are those are fine classic cars, but they just don't quite make them in that model anymore. And well, they don't make Crystal Cathedrals anymore either. Anyway, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange uh, has raised its bid for the Crystal Cathedral to fifty-three point six. Million dollars, the church recently submitted a revised non-contingent offer to purchase the Garden Grove, California church. Offered to pay in cash, <laughs> according to the church's website. <laughs> oh man, I just I I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it. I'm rooting for the I'm rooting for the Roman Catholic archdiocese. I hope that the judge orders them or orders the Crystal Cathedral to sell to them. Because I mean. The, the 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 reality is the folks at the Crystal Cathedral don't have too many options open to them. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, on Monday, however, the the Crystal Cathedral leaders announced that they were no longer putting the thirty-one-year-old church up for sale, and instead instead they began looking to God for a miracle to solve the bankruptcy problem. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so uh, the announcement came with a banner on their webpage, linking it to a donation option in the hopes of raising 50 million in 120 days. There have been no reports as to how much has been raised since the announcement. So there you go. You got the Roman Catholic archdiocese promising to pay 53 million in cash (laughs) and, And the Schulers, uh, you know, basically going, no, no, we need to raise uh, 50 million in 120 days. And so um, so, uh, there you go. I mean, maybe we need to set up some kind of like a betting pool. You know, I, 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 I should contact Las Vegas to find out if there is a betting pool already as to whether or not, you know, what are the odds that the Roman Catholic Archdiocese is going to end up with the Crystal Cathedral as opposed to, uh, Robert Shuler and his family raising a hun- uh, the 50 million necessary to pay off their, de- uh, uh, their creditors in the next 120 days. So, I mean, it's a horse race now. I, who are you betting for? I, <laughs> I just think it's hilarious. I just think I talk about, talk about sending a, uh, talk about an object lesson anyway. So, <clears throat> Moving along um, to the Pyromaniacs blog, uh, the name of the uh, the article is Pornogra- "Pornographic Divination." This is Phil Johnson weighing in regarding um, uh, Mark Driscoll's well, pornographic visions that he thinks are coming from God, and I'm not so convinced that they are. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Phil Johnson writes. He says in a post last week, I pointed out that the, uh, the preposterous claims and unhinged behavior and spiritual quackery. That are so prominent at the charismatic movement's lunatic fringe are by no means limited to the outer edges. Goofiness and gullibility are necessary byproducts of a belief system that fails to take seriously the principle of sola scriptura and its ramifications, i.e. the authority and sufficiency of scripture. Mm-hmm. Here's a sample of the kind of thing I was referring to. The video below features Mark Driscoll claiming the Holy Spirit regularly gives him graphic visions showing acts of rape, fornicators in flagrant delictio, and uh, sexual child molesters in the very act. Now, by the way, we've played the video for this already, uh, the audio for this uh, last week. So this he's posted it on his blog for people to... Uh, here for themselves, and he says, Warning, this is an extremely disturbing video for multiple reasons, and here's the reason why this is bad teaching. The biblical gift of discernment has nothing to do with soothsaying and everything to do with mature, clear understanding and ability to make wise and careful distinctions, and especially skill in differentiating between holy and profane, clean and unclean, truth and falsehood. And he Cites as his proof of this, Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 23, and Hebrews 5, verse 14. Next, the counsel Driscoll gives is bad counsel. If, by his own admission, Driscoll's divinations are not a 100% always right, he has no business accusing people of serious sins, including felony crimes based on what he sees in his own imagination. Much less should he encourage his congregants to dream that they have such an ability and urge them to use that gift. No kidding. Uh, next, the salacious details he recounts are totally unnecessary. Yeah, that's correct. They serve only to reinforce the concern of uh, uh, some of us have raised. Why does Driscoll have such a fixation with obscene with this obscene subject matter uh ribald stories and racy talk the smutty particulars regarding a counselee's tryst and a cheap hotel are not merely unnecessary it is disgraceful even to speak of such things please see ephesians chapter 5 verse 12 exactly for, okay for instance okay let me give it a, just a, kind of like a an argument from silence, but it's not exactly an argument from silence. David, King David, um, uh, in case you're not familiar with um, his particular sins, um, he, uh, well, let's just say that he committed adultery. Uh, That's what it's called. Uh, There was a gal by the name of Bathsheba bathing while naked within within range of him being able to view it from a... uh, well, from his um, his uh, palatial, um, you know, stately ma- mansion. Anyway, he ended up, um, you know, having adultery, committing adultery with her. She got pregnant. It ended up in, in uh, they, he tried to come up, concoct some way of hiding it uh, from her husband. He didn't go along with the things, and uh, he ended up getting murdered. Now, the prophet Nathan, Nathan the prophet is the one who confronts, David with his sin and there is nothing in the biblical record that says that Nathan the prophet had a videotaped uh view of uh of David's um well the details of his um hooking up with uh, Bathsheba N- none of that and in, and in, in at all in fact that was really kind of unnecessary uh but God the God did send Nathan the prophet to confront David with uh, with his unconfessed adultery and murder, and it and it and it brought D, uh, David to his knees in repentance, um, and he was absolved; his sins were forgiven. Um, it, it, you know, unlike uh, in fact, it's quite the opposite of what happened with Saul. But nowhere do we hear that Nathan the prophet or any other prophet was given the salacious details of of any anyone's particular sins. It's just that this is what they did, and God, and God sent Nathan the prophet to confront him with his sin. It's just like, is it really necessary for you to have seen the so-called sexual encounter? Uh, It's just, yeah. Yeah. Something ain't right here. Anyway, uh, for that same reason, uh, Phil Johnson continues, among others, these yarns aren't even believable. The Holy Spirit's own eyes are too pure to behold evil, and he cannot look on wickedness. See Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. So why would the Holy Spirit display pornographic visions to Mark Driscoll, whose mind and mouth are already too lewd anyway? Uh, next, this proves that cessationist concerns are not far-fetched. Reformed charismatics frequently complain that it's unfair for cessationists not to expressly exempt them when we criticize the eccentricities of the wacko fringe of uh, larger char- of the larger charismatic movement. Actually, it's the mainstream, and that's what he point- his point is here. But reformed charismatics themselves aren't careful to distance themselves from charismatic nuttiness. John Piper was openly intrigued with the Toronto blessing when it was at its peak. If he ever denounced it as a fraud, I never heard or read where he stated that fact publicly. Wayne Grudem, in this day, endorses Jack Deere, surprised by the power of the spirit, despite the way Deere lionizes Paul Kane. uh, Sam Storms aligned himself with the Kansas City Prophets cult for almost a decade. I can't imagine how anyone holding to Grudem's view of modern prophecy could possibly repudiate what Driscoll insists, he has experienced. Does anyone really expect a thoughtful analysis or critique of Driscoll's view of the gift of discernment, much less a collective repudiation of this kind of pornographic divination from Reformed, charismati- uh, from Reformed charismatics? I certainly don't. Thus, we see that the leaky uh, canon view leaves the church exposed, only, not only to the whimsy of hyperactive imaginations, but as we see here, to the defiling influence of an impure mind as well. That's his take on it. And uh, I I, I don't find myself differing with Phil Johnson at all on this. I'm deeply concerned for uh, Mark Driscoll at this point, because what he described is not the gift of discernment that the Bible describes, but that was something completely, completely different. Okay, moving along. I am now going to read the um, the the interview that Peter Drucker gave or did with uh, Christianity Today in April of 1989. So I mean we're we're going back, um, we're going back, we're going way back, okay. And keep in mind, uh, you know, the Purpose Driven Church book was written what 1996. So this is during the time when uh, Peter Drucker was taking his career and transitioning his focus from corporate management to uh, church leadership. And, uh, and so this is the time when he was actively discipling and teaching men like Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and Bob Buford and, and helping them understand the finer points of his leadership Ideas of his corporate model and what he was up to, and I want you to listen to this interview uh, with uh, w- looking for a, cu- a few cu- a couple of things. What's his view of the individual? Um, see if you can discern it from this. Uh, from this, it might be a little bit difficult to figure that one out. But uh, just listen in, because and see if you hear any uh, any themes from romanticism. You will hear that, and also listen carefully to what he says pastoral churches are and what the job of the sermon is and his view of theology. Now, his view of theology, I read this, uh, this was excerpted in the New York Times piece that I read last week, but I want you to hear it in the context of the full interview. So this is Christianity Today's interview with Peter Drucker from April of 1989. And so this is long before the seeker-driven movement really takes off in the form of of the the Willow Creek Network and the Purpose Driven Church Network, this this is while this is during the time when Drucker was discipling Bob Buford, Bill Heibels, and uh, Rick Warren. So li- li- listen in. Christianity Today writes: Peter Drucker has been called the father of modern management. His twenty-two books, including The Effective Executive and Managing for Results, have helped shape both American and Japanese management. Another book, The New Realities, will be published in June of 1989. As a consultant and author, he was influential in the successful reorganizing of major businesses, among them General Motors and Sears, in advising governmental agencies, including the Department of Defense. More recently, he has turned his attention to nonprofit human service organizations, including churches. And this, quote, third sector has become the center of gravity for his consulting work. His most recent project is a set of 25 audio cassettes called the Nonprofit Drucker, in which he and key third sector leaders, including pastors, discuss the unique challenges in leading human services organizations. After spending two years focusing on that project, he observed quote, We worry these days about the decline of the family and the disintegration of the community, but there is a strong counter trend the creation of new bonds of community. In and through the third sector organizations, this is a purely American development without counterpart anywhere. It may be America's most important contribution. To ask this respected thinker and analyst what he's discovered about the church, the leadership editors traveled to Claremont, California, where Professor Drucker, soon to celebrate his 80th birthday, continues to teach management and social science at the Claremont Graduate School. After a lifetime of studying management, why are you now turning your attention to the church? Drucker's answer: Well, let me correct two common misunderstandings. First, your question shows that you, like most everyone else, think of the world of the word management as business management. Many people are surprised to find out that for 35 years I've been working with nonprofit institutions, hospitals, schools, charitable organizations. They'll ask. What do you do for them? Advise them on fundraising? I reply, well, no, I I don't know a a thing about fundraising. I teach them management. Thirty years ago, many nonprofits were contemptuous, not only of the word management, but even of the concept. They said, we don't need management. We don't have a bottom line. But now they all know that nonprofits need better management precisely because they don't have the uh, discipline of the conventional bottom line to measure effectiveness. Second, as far as I'm concerned, it's the other way around. I became interested in management because of my interest in religion and institutions. I started out teaching religion, and all of my personal experience in management has been with nonprofits working in academia and serving on boards of everything from Blue Cross to museums. You've observed that third-sector nonprofits is the fastest-growing segment in our society, growing faster than the two sectors, government and business. Growing in what way? Drucker's answer, well, primarily in the number of people involved. There's explosive growth in what most people call volunteers, a misleading term, I think because they are actually unpaid staff. The Girl Scouts have 730,000 workers who give at least three hours a week and the amount of time given at which I consider a volunteer to become unpaid staff. The Boy Scouts have a similar number, and I don't think there's much overlap. There are one and a half million people who give time to the Red Cross, not counting blood donors. The best total estimate from the independent sector is 80 to 90 million adults give time to nonprofits and not only have the numbers grown, but the role has grown tremendously. For example, I'm familiar with one Catholic diocese where 20 years ago, practically all of the work was done by the priests and nuns. Now the number of priests is down 50% and nuns about 80%. Yet the diocese has doubled its activities because it, it now has two to 3,000 people who give at least three hours of work each week. They do everything except dispense the sacraments. They are basically running the diocese. That's perhaps the fast side of growth. But the evangelical churches, you see the same phenomenon. I have, I've been trying to figure out how many people give at least three hours a week just to the 10,000 churches with Sunday attendance of more than 1,000. It's a staggering number. Well how do you explain this growth? Well two ways. One is demand is the demand answer and the other is the supply answer. The demand answer is simple. There are so many young educated people who are struggling with ambition and isolation. They come out of blue collar backgrounds or a farm background and find themselves working in the jungle of Los Angeles or Cincinnati. They need something to offset the intensity of the competitive, high-pressure, high-stress environment. They need something that they may not be conscious of, but something that restores balance and sanity. They need community. On the supply side, more and more churches are what I call pastoral churches. Their purpose is not to perpetuate a particular liturgy or maintain an existing institutional form. Instead, they're asking what my business friends would call the marketing question— Who are the customers, and what's of value to them? They're more interested in the pastoral question, what do these people need that we can supply, than in the theological nuances of how we can preserve our distinctive doctrines. These churches are growing partly because the younger people need pastoring and not just preaching, and partly because, very bluntly, people are dreadfully bored with theology. They can't appreciate the subtleties, and I sympathize with them. I taught religion— I didn't teach theology. I've always felt that quite clearly the good Lord loves diversity. He created 2,500 species of flies, and if he had been like some theologians I know, there would have been only one right species of fly. But there are 2,500. Pastoral churches appreciate the importance of diversity. I'm going to interrupt here for a second here. I mean... So what do you think Peter Drucker thinks regarding doctrine and theology? Do you think he truly believes in sound doctrine? Do you think he believes that there is sound objective doctrine that has to be proclaimed and taught in the church? That that's the job of the pastor to preach sound doctrine? From I, I would say from this quote is pretty clear. That does that really doesn't affect him at all. A weird sentence that he got. He says, I taught religion. I didn't teach theology. So Drucker in 1989 made it clear that he was looking for, quote, pastoral churches. They, these are pastoral churches, churches that are not interested in perpetuating a particular theology or liturgy or church form, but were asking the marketing question of what they can do to help people, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, what to do. What do these people need that we can supply? Basically, looking out in the world out there, look what do people need, and we're going to supply it. Weird, isn't it? Yeah. And by the way, that little uh, that little paragraph about the uh, the person, the the young person who grew up in you know blue collar sector or on a farm, and finds themselves in the jungles of Los Angeles or Cincinnati. That is. <laughs> I I can point you to example after example after example of uh, of romantic German philosophers uh, who were definitely clearly in the fascist camp. This is exactly how they would talk because you know capitalism created isolation; it it, it disconnected people from the land and and they they always characterized the city as uh, as a terrible terrible place of disconnectedness. And to run by the machines of reason and things like that, and so it's weird because this paragraph of his sounds exactly the way early twentieth-century existential romantics were talking, and those guys were always the ones who were in the camp with the fascists. Interesting, though. Anyway, I just had to point that out. Okay, so let's see here. Where do I pick up again? Ah, oh, yeah, here, here it is. <clears throat> Next question. You mentioned that nonprofits don't have a conventional bottom line. What then is the gauge of their effectiveness? Listen to this answer. Now, you're, you're thinking about nonprofits as like you know just nonprofit corporations. Think also churches. Listen to his answer. All nonprofits have one essential product, a changed human being. How many of these seeker-driven churches – I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I heard one of these guys talk about changed lives. I mean, it, 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 we're experiencing life change. Apparently, that is the uh, – that that's the product that seeker-driven churches are providing, changed human beings. Okay, He says, this is a different approach from business. In business, your goal is not to change the customer – It's not to educate the customer. It's to satisfy the customer. Whatever a business forgets, and whenever a business forgets that, it's in trouble. When GM tried to tell us what cars we ought to drive, we began to drive Toyotas. But nonprofits aim for change. Hospitals seek to change sick patients into healthy ones. Schools aim to change students into educated individuals. And churches? The question is, not it? well, the church has a difficult problem in that the books are not kept on this side. So far, even Congress hasn't been able to force an audit of those accounts. But I would say that the church's aim is to make a difference in the way a parishioner lives, to change the parishioner's values into God's values. Well, how important is it for a local church to develop its own distinctive version? That's the question that was put before him. How important is it for a local church to develop its own distinctive vision? A unified, clear vision is essential, and yet in nonprofits, you're almost always dealing with a number of constituencies, each of which wants something different emphasized. When you look at churches, the mission is clear. It comes straight out of the Gospels. Basically, you're to bring the Gospel to all mankind. Very clear, very simple, maybe the simplest mission. I'm not saying that it's the easiest, but it's the simplest. But are the various constituencies, do they see specifics in, a, in sharply different ways? Well, this is true of all nonprofit institutions, school boards and teachers and parents and students all see different purposes for the school system. 50 years ago the vision was clear the school's purpose was to see that students learn the school focused on skills uh, the ability to read to do mathematical uh, the multiplication table in recent years various constituencies began arguing about what learning means it was broadened beyond skills to include traits development of character personality social tasks and as a as a result the unifying focal point was lost with so many goals to accomplish you can't function as effectively despite the conflicting visions any nonprofit faces it it has to be held together somehow this is the pastor's challenge with the church to maintain the common mission and if you don't well if you don't well one of the basic weaknesses of the mainline liberal church is that there hasn't they ha, it hasn't maintained the common vision the leaders see the church as, as dedicated to social causes outside of the church but the congregation doesn't see it that way the result is confusion and ineffectiveness so what are the key steps in arriving at a common vision for a particular local church? Well, you have to know when to say no. That's particularly difficult for a church. But you have to admit uh, some things are not your responsibility. If you go to the American Lung Association, say, haven't you seen those frightening statistics that 97% of all Americans have ingrown toenails? Why don't you cure ingrown toenails? Well, they'll tell you, essentially, our interest stops above the neck and below the navel. And even there, they are not interested in the heart or the esophagus. If it if it does have anything to do with the respiratory system, I'm sorry, but you'll have to go elsewhere. Often people feel the church exists to take care of problems. It's terribly hard for the church to say no, and yet the effective ones say no. They know what their mission is, and they make no apologies for sticking to that. Does this sound like some of the pastors we've... I played here at Fighting for the Faith. This was, again, an interview with Drucker in 1989. He says, I made myself terribly unpopular by saying recently I know the homeless have needs and their plight bothers me too. But should your church really be in the shelter business? It's one, uh, one thing to encourage trained laypeople to go into the community and perform various services. It's another to see these functions as part of the church's mission. On the other hand, I'm not consistent. I have friends in a major Catholic archdiocese who run the only schools in which local inner-city kids can really learn. The public schools there are notoriously bad, and 94% of those kids are not Catholics and probably never will be. The archdiocese is strapped for money and the, the parishes are screaming, we need, we need money to repair the church roof and to put all of our money into the schools for non-Catholics. Yet I've been encouraging them to keep the schools open because I think that maybe this comes before repairing the roof. So I'm not consistent. And so the question then is, what makes the difference? Well, two factors. The need is there. Without those schools, the outlook for these those kids is pretty grim. But equally important is uh, the church has proven its competence. The church has demonstrated its effectiveness in teaching young people, and the homeless. Well, as I looked at this particular church was doing with the homeless, it struck me as no different from what several other organizations were offering. And as a result, it changed lives. It, the result in the results in changed lives were zero. Or pretty close to it. So, according to, by the way, this, notice a the theme here. According to Peter Drucker, who truly is the father of the purpose driven, seeker driven church model, the product that churches are offering the world is changed lives. That's the product, that's the measure of success. How many changed lives? So, he's talking about so one church was offering help to the homeless, and he says the results in changed lives were zero are pretty close to it. Saying so is tough, but it's what makes for effective ministry in other areas. So beyond merely recognizing a need, the key question is, can we really make a difference? Can we minister competently? Need and competence are preeminent, but we must also look to see if anyone else is already doing the job. And by the way, is this what Jesus meant when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you to go and make a difference in that our, the product the church has to offer, it will has changed lives. By the way, Alcoholics Anonymous changes lives. Um, the Mormon church changes lives. There's people who, who were really, really immoral and then they, they fled to Islam and, well, their lives were changed and now they pray five times a day. Apparently, uh, Islam and Mormonism are, well, they they too are offering the product of changed lives. Hmm. <clears throat> anyway, here's uh, so. Here's what he says. At times, we all have to say, "Well, the need is there," but this ministry is not for us. The church is the only organization that is not entirely concerned with the kingdom of this earth. All the others are totally focused on this side. We're the only one with another dimension, and for that reason, many good concerns about here are not our primary focus. Any organization can do only a certain number of things. The, great, the greatest danger for a successful organization is to take on things that don't fit it personally yeah, in your books, you've mentioned the danger of an organization being internally driven. You said that you said the organizations must not must not do just what it wants to do, but it needs to be market driven, adjusting to the needs of the customers. Does that apply to churches? Yes, the church needs to be market driven. again, listen to the answer. Yes. The church needs to be market-driven, but it also needs to understand its purpose. The two things have to mesh. If you're only eternity-driven, you quickly become bureaucratic. You lose touch with people and lose your effectiveness. If you're only market-driven, you quickly become mercenary and totally opportunistic. You need both. There's nothing wrong with the Girl Scouts, but the Church is not the Girl Scouts. There's nothing wrong with the Country Club, but we aren't the country Club we're a church we have uh, We have certain things we value that are not of value to anybody else. That's wh- uh, where we should focus. Let's turn from the question of the Church's direction to that of the pastor's role as leader in implementing that direction. The key question for a leader is, what can I do in this organization that nobody else can do? And several questions emerge from that. What did the good Lord ordain me for? What are my strengths? What am I good at? And where have I seen results? Very few of us ask these questions because very few of us even know how we perform. What what, what am I good at? We don't usually ask that question. We've been trained to notice our weaknesses, not our strengths. Schools of necessity are remedial institution. When teachers meet with parents, rarely do they say, your Johnny should do more writing. He's so talented in writing. No, more likely you hear Johnny needs more work on his math. He's a bit weak in that area. As a result, few of us really know our strengths. The great teachers and great leaders recognize strengths and then focus on them. How do you begin to get accurate reading about strengths, unique abilities? Well, there are two very simple ways. One is absolutely reliable but takes a little time. The other is about 65% reliable but immediate. The 65% reliable approach is to ask your secretary. It's not 100% reliable because the really good secretaries won't tell you. That's the secret of their control. They know and you don't. The absolutely reliable method is to think through what uh, your key activities are. Every time you do something in a key activity, write down what you expect to happen. Nine months later, look at what really happened. Within a year or two, you find out what your strengths are. This method, of course, has a great link to church history. Historians continue to puzzle over one of the great mysteries of histories. How can, how to explain the 16th century? In 1860, two institutions dominated Europe, neither of which had existed 25 years earlier. The North was dominated by the Calvinist movement, the South by the Jesuit order. In 1534, Loyola gathered the nucleus of his new order and took the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. In 1536, Calvin arrived in Geneva. Twenty-five years later, Europe had been changed. Nothing in the history of the world, not even in the rise of Islam, can compare with the rapid growth and effectiveness of these institutions. How do you explain it? Both were, by 1560, large institutions, each involving thousands of ordinary people, most of them working alone. Many worked under great pressure and danger, yet there were practically no defections, very few bad apples. What was the secret? Now we understand it. Both Calvin and Loyola taught a similar spiritual discipline, that whenever one does anything in a key activity, they were usually spiritual activities but not entirely, one writes it down and then one keeps track of what happens. This feedback, whether it's a Calvinistic examination of your conscience or the Jesuit spiritual exercise, is the way you quickly find out what you're good at. And you find out what your bad habits are, that inhibit your full yield. What kind of things could pastors monitor? Well, their intentions, their actions, the results, whether the results were expected results. For instance, I I may discover when I put a person in charge of a particular ministry, my batting average is very high. Apparently, when it comes to people's decisions, I do well. On the other hand, perhaps I find that most of the times I've started a new program, it flounders. And when I ask what I did wrong, very often I can identify the bad habit. It, it may be impatience. I insert myself in the activity and discourage people delegated, it. If you pull up the radish every two weeks to see how it's going, it will never survive. Or it may be the other way around. I, I waited too long. I didn't build in checkpoints early enough. Uh, this timing can be readjusted or I may recognize that I haven't tested the idea. Again and again I see people who don't pilot, who go from good idea straight to full-fledged operations. It's always a good idea to have a pilot. One of the most successful administrations in hist in American history was the New Deal. All its innovations worked except for one. The WPA was a dismal disaster. It was the one only one that had not been tested in small operations. Social security had been tested in Wisconsin. The farm security program had been tested in California. So the key leaders knew the program before it went full scale. Church leaders also do well to start small on, say, a small group ministry or a community outreach program before they launch a major church wide emphasis. Besides recognizing your own strengths and the importance of monitoring, what else does a leader need to know? The key activities, no matter what your personal strengths are, you have to know what each key task is for your organization and to make sure someone is doing each one. Growing organizations can get into trouble in two ways. Let's say the pastor is very good at preaching and pretty good at training, but there are two other key tasks in any organization, managing money and managing people. Let's say the pastor is not good at, at money getting it and plan- and planning its most effective use. In fact, his interest in preaching not investing money was one reason he went to seminary in the first place and let's say the pastor is not gifted at at directed human contact and is basically an intellectual and a communicator. The temptation is to make one of two mistakes, either of which will kill or cripple the church. The pastor can assume, though not consciously, that what he does well and what he likes are 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 to do are the only things that matter. The other tasks just don't get adequate attention. That's the lesser mistake, because at least two important things still get done well. The mistake that really kills the church is when the pastor is conscientious and says, I know money is important, I know people contacts are important, and and, he's, and so he forces himself to do them. As a result, he spends an inordinate amount of time. On these things, does them poorly and slights the things he's good at and thus does them poorly too. Within a few years, you have an ungodly mess on your hands. Well, how do you make sure key areas are adequately covered? The secret is to sit down with your key associates and board members individually, not as a, a, in a group, and say, think through the key activities of this church. What things have to be done if this church is going to be effective? After you sit with those seven to nine people, look at the list that you've compiled. In most cases, you won't have complete congruence, but there's such substantial overlap that it's really unanimous. Uh, There are usually few exceptions. But take exceptions seriously. They may simply indicate that somebody misunderstands, but they may also represent a major opportunity or blind spot in the group's thinking. Then call a meeting of the group, share the list, and say, the next step is for each of you to look at all of the other people in this room, don't look at yourself, and put down the strengths of each person, not yourself. What is Joe good at? What is Mary's strength? Collect the list and compare them privately. Again, it's amazing how much agreement there is usually, but any dissent is important because if six of you see Joe as being good with people and three do not... We need to refine the question. It becomes, what do we mean? How do we want people treated? You may need a recruiter, a trainer, a disciplinarian, or an encourager. Joe may be gracious to an excellent quality, but he can't say no. Some people are pleasant. Others are good with people. Those aren't necessarily the same. So at times, you have to be more precise about the strengths. Likewise, being good with money usually needs to be further defined. Jack may be great... At book, uh keeping the books, but he has a tendency to forget the church doesn't exist for the sake of finances. Now you need someone sound and alert when the books don't balance. But he should be able to say we don't have the money given the current budget. Uh, but he should not uh, be the one to say. This is the wrong thing to do. The bookkeeper should be the the hair shirt, not the policymaker, because he judges by different criteria. After you've evaluated strengths in key activities, then you begin to match them up, making sure that key activity is covered and you are beginning to build an effective team. Now, I'm going to point something out here. All of this assumes that you're building an effective team and it's a church team with the understanding that the church is to be market. Focused, market-driven, trying to find a way of meeting the needs of the market. I mean, this sounds like all of the stuff I learned when I was in uh, business school, when I got my MBA from Pepperdine. And this fine, fine business management stuff that we're hearing here from Drucker. But again, all of this assumes, according to Drucker, that the church is market-driven, market-focused. Weird, huh? Next question. So how does a pastor communicate the vision to the congregation? This has become known in seeker-driven parlance as vision casting or casting the vision. And remember, this is the vision to, well, uh, to make the church market-driven and market-focused, to meet the needs of the market in their particular neck of the woods. So the question is, how does a pastor communicate vision To the congregation. Oh, but I I, I forgot one sentence here. Hang on. After you've evaluated the strengths and key activities, then you begin matching them up, making sure that each key activity is covered, and you're beginning to build an effective team. uh, That uh, in a church that's market driven, and the product is to change lives. So, how does a pastor communicate vision to the congregation? He says the sermon is so important. The sermon unifies. It's the one thing we have in common. And today, you have twenty minutes to communicate the vision to provide an existential dimension. Forgive me if I sound like an old Kierkegaardian. I started out when I was 19 to learn Danish so I could read Kierkegaard. Part of the sermon's purpose is to make us conscious of the fact that we are creatures, that there is an existence, a dimension that is not confined by earthly experience, that there is a genuine experience that is not of this world, that there is another world, but it completely penetrates encompasses and encapsulates this world. Does it sound like anything you read in the Bible? It's all right if my prejudices show here. I've held them for so long that they've they've become considered judgments. You have only 20 minutes to do this each Sunday, which is quite a challenge. And so the question is, well, besides preaching, how can a pastor work to implement the vision? When you look at a well, at well-run organizations, you see that the top people sit on, on, on personnel decisions, even at fairly low levels. That's where the key difference is made. In corporations, it can really annoy the personnel department when suddenly the big boss appears for a meeting to discuss the promotion to general supervisor. Alfred P. Sloan, the man who built GM, sat in on personnel decisions down to lower middle management. Not every time, but enough so that you were not surprised when, for instance, he would show up unannounced in Terrytown, New York, and say, I happen to be in the neighborhood and I understand you were meeting to decide who's going to be master mechanic here. Simply by sitting in, he focused attention on the task and better decisions were made. Part of the leader's job is to set the spirit of the organization. That doesn't mean simply to lay out policy and plans, but to exemplify them, to pay personal attention to the areas where the vision is being worked out. A lot has been written about the pastor's role. We often see the metaphor of the chief executive officer. Is seeing the pastor as CEO of the church a helpful model? Up to a point, yes, it is helpful if people recognize that the pastor has to be involved in major decisions of the organization, but it's not helpful if it implies the church is no different from General Motors. The church is quite different, not just because it has a different mission and different values, but also because the results are within the body. The only result that counts at General Motors is my buying their Pontiac. Even with the increased emphasis on volunteers, I don't think anybody gives 3 hours a week unpaid to General Motors except those of us who are trying to make one of their cars run. Another difference is that the good pastors do not see themselves as the boss, or rather they don't see them they don't they don't do not see subordinates. They see associates. That is one danger in the CEO term. It implies that we're made of different clay. No, no, the church is a partnership. And every member of the congregation is a partner, not a shareholder. The music director is a partner, not a subordinate. Many other organizations can be run on the army model, the command model. The church cannot. It's a partnership. In the sense, using CEO terminology is misleading and can be misinterpreted. We talked about... We've talked with pastors who feel uncomfortable with the CEO model because it doesn't represent their position. They do not feel that they control so much as they are controlled by the congregation. This idea that the CEO is in the control is Hollywood's idea. Some CEOs are autocratic, but many would feel the same pressures from a constituency. They not only report to a board, but a good CEO knows also the organization will outlive him. I've served as advisor to the Secretary of Defense in a couple of administrations. One asked me, what's the one thing a Secretary of Defense has to know? I told him, remember that the generals will outlive you. He didn't understand that until years later. We ran into each other. He said, Peter, I wish I had listened to you. I didn't think generals would outlive me. You can fire generals, but then you have to appoint new ones who will be exactly like the old ones because that is their job. They behave a certain way because that's inherent in their function. Any CEO who believes he controls the organization is kidding himself. The people in the accounting department control you, the people in the plants control you. It's like a it's like Truman's statement when Eisenhower was elected president. Poor Ike, he'll sit in the big office and push a button and nothing will happen. And that from the man whose desk declared the buck stops here. That's the illusion. There are CEOs who delude themselves, believing they have control. The result is either, one, they think that control is what matters, and they are sabotaged by the organization the way the Secretary of Defense was, or two, they destroy the organization by getting rid of anybody who is not a puppet, and the day they leave, the whole thing collapses. What's left is nothing but a hollow shell. That's the worst thing you can say about anybody who's in charge of an organization. The successful leaders are those who know their job is to build an effective team that will outlast them. They are the servant of the team. And yes, part of their function is to accept the fact that many times the buck does stop with them. That's a burden of responsibility, not a rank. If the leader's most important task is to keep the vision clearly in front of the people What are the dangers to avoid? Well, valuing the wrong things, losing the spiritual focus, counting the wrong things, the trappings, not the essence. Of course, this is uh, just as much a danger for hospitals and universities as for churches. A university can begin to see... Uh, success in how many of the alumni are making big careers. That's not unimportant, but it isn't the main thing. And the hospital that becomes so focused on the acclaim of the physicians can forget the needs of the patient. And the church must also remember it will not be evaluated in this life. The rewards are not on this side. I've been teaching now for almost 60 years. There was a time when I was considered a good teacher. No longer. I think I'm still adequate, but how much longer, I don't know. But at one time, I think I was a pretty good one. And yet, if I had any success, it was the rare instances when I said something that really made a difference to a student. Those results are not easy to quantify. I wouldn't know how many times that happened. They're fairly rare. They don't happen every day, not even every week, and maybe not every, even every month. But if a year goes by without it happening, I think, uh, I, think I wasted a year, basically as a teacher. Not all my teaching colleagues would agree. A good many of them see their success failure more in terms of, sub, of subject competence, but that's not the essence of teaching. So what is the essence of effective church ministry? I've never had any desire to lead a church. I always knew that was one thing I would do very poorly. I don't know how I would define success, except I surely would ask myself whether we make a difference both in the way people live and above all in the vision of people that's the definition of a saint somebody who sees reality the idea that saints are altruistic is a total misunderstanding saints are self-interested they know what true interest they know what the true interest interest of a human being is uh, unlike the rest of us who suffer all kinds of delusions we are making a difference in the way people see what's truly important in life I don't know how you can measure this, this, certainly not by the bookkeeping of this world, but I'm reasonably sure that some sort of bookkeeping is going on someplace. The key, I think, is the commitment to be available to people. You know that old proverb, when it rains manna from heaven, you have to have a big spoon. So when the opportunity is there, when the person is receptive, you are there and you've established a trust. There was an episode in the life of Martin Luther when he was in deep despair. He went to his Augustinian prior who said, Brother Martin, it is a sin to be in despair. For Martin, that that was the important thing to say. What would have become of that young monk without that moment? The prior, intellectually, was surely his inferior and probably spiritually too. But he said the right word. He was available and used the moment of opportunity. It did not answer any of Martin's spiritual and theological questions, but it certainly changed him. It was an example of effective ministry interesting that um Peter Drucker, who grew up in a liberal in liberal Lutheranism, you know which basically means you know, might as well have been secularism um <laughs> as a confessional Lutheran, I can say there's nothing worse than either liberal Lutheranism or Lutheran pietism. Both are just really bad. Anyway, um, it's weird. Uh, Martin Luther points to his moment when he understood from Romans chapter 3 that the just will live by faith. Peter Drucker thinks the most important thing was uh, this Augustinian uh, prior in the monastery taking the time to tell Brother Martin that um, despair is a sin. It changed his life. Not, Not that he discovered the gospel. No, 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 no. Theology, yeah, no, no, we're not interested in that. No, Brother Martin had his life changed. And so the church apparently is in in the business of changing people's lives. That's the product. And changed lives are the product, and and it needs to be market-driven. So there you have it. That, That was Peter Drucker from 1989. You're thinking, man, that sounded like a business school lecture. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And so here's the question. Is this what the pastoral epistles teach a pastor should be about? Is this what Jesus meant and this is what he had in mind when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you? Is this what Jesus had in mind when he told the the church to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations? Or is this what Paul had in mind when he told Titus and Timothy to Teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, to preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and sound doctrine and, you know, sound teaching. Or to always be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within you. Um, or to, um, uh, you know, to study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, rightly handling, rightly dividing, rightly cutting the word of truth. Is that what, I mean, is this what the apostles had in mind is this what jesus had in mind or is this an example of complete mission creep based upon bad theology don't you think that somebody who doesn't value theology but says that they value religion is guilty of having bad theology i do Alright, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
6: Relevance, schmelllevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents "Death of a Salesman." Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some?
4: Rah! <laughs> listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP t- walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to FightingForTheFaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. We're back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's not really a sermon review, but I'll play the sermon review music because that kind of makes sense. It's a theological conversation we'll be listening to. Kind of fascinating, too. Nerdy, I I should warn you. (laughs) The, the, The next hour is going to be nerdy. My inner nerd is coming out. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's, well, it's not a sermon. It's a lecture, a series of lectures, three lectures, discussing, uh, uh, well, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. This is eye-opening. By three of the uh, pastors, pastors, but professors from the School of Theology at Seattle Pacific University. Let's see if they have the names of these gentlemen. Hang on a second here. Um... Yes, Associate Professor of Theology Daniel Castello, Instructor of Biblical Studies, and and Ninjay Gupta, and uh, and Assistant Professor of Theology Mike Langford talk about Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Now, we're not going to play the Q&A section. We're going to just listen to the professors pontificating, well, giving us their feedback regarding Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, where Rob Bell attacks the doctrine of eternal punishment, um, a.k.a. Hell, and uh, tries to come up with the concept of love wins. Now, each pastor has a different take on it. Each one is kind of instructive, and I think together as a whole, they kind of give you an idea of where American evangelical scholarship is at the moment. It's not a good thing. Anyway.
4: Dun, 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 dun.
0: All right, so let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here are the three professors responding to the book Love Wins by Rob Bell. Here we go.
6: I'm Doug Strong, the Dean of the School of Theology, and I want to welcome you to this panel sponsored by the SPU School of Theology, interacting with an influential new book by Pastor Rob Bell of Michigan entitled Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. In case you're unfamiliar, Rob Bell is a 40-year-old graduate of Wheaton College and Fuller Seminary, who played in two different indie bands and is the author of seven books.
0: <laughs> is, it, is it really important to know that Rob Bell played in an indie band? Maybe, maybe that explains his the theology right there. <clears throat> in
6: 1999, he founded Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which, despite the similar name, has no connection whatsoever with the Mars Hill Church or Mars Hill Graduate School, both here in Seattle. Bell's Church averages around 10,000 people attending every Sunday. How many here have read the book, Love Wins?
1: Ooh, ooh,
4: I
0: have have several times. Thank
6: you. It's good to know uh, that some of you are (laughs) familiar, at least, with uh, Rob Bell's arguments. Love Wins is a book about theology, uh, but it is written not as a systematic, uh, formal systematic theology, but for a popular audience. And as such, it has no footnotes, and which of course is to the consternation of every theologian. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, all, we were speaking earlier, we do not want you to take this as a model for your own work <laughs> as you're doing it here. It is not intended to be especially precise in its theological formulations by its very nature, and it leaves a lot of open questions, and that's his
0: intent. This is appropriate. Give. Yeah, it's called deconstructionism. It's a tool of postmodern liberals uh, to attack language in order to basically deconstruct truth itself. Are you not familiar with postmodernity?
6: Given Bell's intended audience, people who are, uh, and that audience are especially those who have been turned off by Christianity or those who have a caricatured view of the faith. Bell hopes to be relevant, which At an institution such as ours that intends to help students to engage the culture, we believe to be a good thing. But, as Martin Bashir noted in a much-watched MSNBC interview a few weeks ago, Bell may have articulated, quote, a Christian gospel that's merely palatable to contemporary people who find the idea of heaven and hell very difficult to stomach.
0: Yeah, and Bashir pointed out the fact that Rob Bell completely did not do his homework and mischaracterized Martin Luther. I took a quote out of context to make it sound like Luther was in his camp when nothing could be further from the truth.
6: Bell's book tackles difficult and significant, significant, uh, very significant questions about what heaven and hell are, who gets in and who is kept out of each, why Jesus died on the cross, what we would call questions of atonement, Questions about what eternity really means, the idea of eternity, and
0: especially the... Uh, eternity, according to Bell, is, 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 it's a long time, but it's not forever. It's, it, it's an intense amount of time, though. It's very intense.
6: The question of what God's intention is for humanity. That last question, will God get what God wants, which he sees as the well-being of every person who ever lived in a new creation? God's new creation. Will God get that? That question is answered with the simple statement that love wins. To quote Bell, history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled with God. This contention, which some have interpreted as universalism, has created a firestorm of response,
0: especially... Um, (laughs) which some have interpreted as universalism. Okay, so okay, universalism teaches that everybody is saved. That's universalism, hence the term universal. Um, if Re- Rob Bell's position ultimately ends up with everybody being saved, everybody in, nobody in hell, um, isn't by definition that universalism? I mean, seriously, throw in the term, well, some have interpreted this as universalism. Words have meaning. Only the postmoderns deny that language carries any kind of binding meaning. Um, No, words have meaning. The term universalism means everybody's saved. If, in the end, it doesn't matter by what scheme you get there, it doesn't matter if you get there by marching your way around Jericho, it doesn't matter if you get there by this route, or that route, if in the end the result is the same as universalism, it's universalism.
6: (sighs) ...from some conservative evangelical pastors. They accuse Bell of not being an evangelical, and for some, such as John MacArthur, they even accuse him of not being a Christian, but rather one of the false teachers spoken about in the New Testament.
0: Yeah, uh I agree with MacArthur here.
6: So these are pretty serious issues and accusations. In fact, the highly negative and condemnatory tone of these accusations has led others such as SPU grad Eugene Peterson to comment that quote there's very little Christ, very little Jesus in these people who are fighting rob bell one other interesting thought. One of Bell's most important points is that
0: heaven... Which, by the way, is a completely subjective argument. The question is whether or not their allegations are true, if their contentions are true, if their conclusions are correct. Heaven begins now, and that eternity is to be anticipated
6: in the present, which, interestingly, is also a very Wesleyan concept, the tradition that is the foundation for Seattle Pacific. In the words of Charles Wesley, which interestingly, I think could be cited by Bell. In Christ, and this is uh, Charles Wesley speaking about the forgiveness that we feel or receive when Christ comes into our lives. In Christ, you then shall know, shall feel your sins forgiven, anticipate your heaven below that is on earth, and own that love is heaven. Or from John Wesley...
0: (laughs) Quoting John Wesley as if he's in the same camp as Rob Bell. (laughs) Oh, Pastor Charmley, (laughs) I'd love to get your take on this.
6: Who said that salvation, quote, is not a blessing which lies on the other side of death or in the other world. It is not something at a distance. It is a present thing.
0: And so with this uh, very... By the way, I see these as two completely different categories. I mean, juxtapositioning these things doesn't make any sense at all.
6: Short introduction to this book. I want to introduce to you the panelists uh, for today. Uh, They are uh, in order, uh, and they will be speaking for a few minutes, and then uh, we're going to open it up for your questions and comments. But... uh, our distinguished panel uh, are made up of three professors from the School of Theology. First, Dr. Mike Langford, uh, assist- Assistant Professor of Theology. Uh, second, uh, Dr. Daniel Castello, uh, Associate Professor of Theology. And then Dr. Nije Gupta, uh, Assistant Professor of New Testament. And so uh, these folks will be sharing with us um, about some of their reflections on the book, and then we'll have a time for questions. But first, I'd like to uh, o- uh, open our session uh, today with uh, Reverend Celeste Cranston, uh, the director of the Center for Biblical and Theological Education, who will open us in prayer.
5: Will you stand with me for prayer? God is great. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great clothed with splendor and majesty. You wrap yourself in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent and lay the beams of your upper chamber on their waters. You make the winds your messengers, flames of fire your servants. God is great. God is good. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good and your love endures forever. For you forgive all our sins and heal all our diseases. You redeem our life from the pit and crown us with love and compassion. You satisfy our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. God is good. And so powerful, great and mighty God, gracious, loving and kind God, we call on you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to speak into our lives in this hour by your Holy Spirit. We call on you to make yourself and your ways known to us as we seek you with our whole hearts. We call on you to bring wisdom to the simple and to direct our paths as we ponder, trust, ask, seek, and knock. And we will be careful to give you all the glory, praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated.
7: Hey. Good.
0: <laughs> he starts off his lecture with, hey, hey, how's it going? Hey.
7: Good afternoon. That, that's more formal. I'm wearing a tie. Does that give me more or less authority? I don't know. So, there are those of you that probably want us to excoriate Rob Bell and his book as heresy, as libo, liberal mumbo jumbo as misinterpretation of scripture, and as the whore of Babylon spoken of in Revelation. That'd be a nice
0: start. But in all seriousness, notice this rhetorical... I mean, this is like a rhetorical device designed to really kind of take our attention away from the real seriousness of this problem. If Rob Bell is teaching a different gospel, if Rob Bell is teaching... A different doctrine regarding uh, eternal punishment, then he is a heretic. He is anathema. The characterization that somehow, oh, well, you know, I know you want us to excoriate him, you want us to, to really rake him over the coals, but it, it's done in such a way that the person who truly believes that what Rob Bell is doing, and with good reason, is is teaching heresy, that it, that he's teaching a false gospel, which I truly believe that's what he is doing, that somehow that person is minimalized and marginalized so that their concerns don't really get a, a fair hearing. Instead, they are considered to be on the kook fringe rather than people who have a legitimate biblical argument. That's my problem with that so far.
7: I've always wanted to say that word in a pulpit. There are others of you who probably want us to champion Rob Bell and his book as truth, as authentic witness and spiritual poetry, as the emergent hope for the church and the key to the universe and maybe the mariner season. <laughs> well, all I can say is that if either of those things are what you came here hoping for, you will probably be disappointed. Apparently, he has a fairer, more balanced view than that. Why? Because this book, like most books says some really good things that make me nod and say, right on. And I discover I have this strange urge to text or Twitter or tweet or blog or whatever Rob Bell disciples do with their enthusiasm and spare time. And in addition, the book also says some things that make me shake my head and say, ugh, and want to vigorously cross sections out with my red uniball marker or at least draw huge question marks and say, where did you get that? But I want to focus briefly about one of the things in the book that I think is of the utmost importance. And that okay, Notice, he admitted himself that there are sections
0: that he has deep disagreements with.
7: Hmm. That is how we speak of salvation itself. Among other things, Bell says that salvation ought not be conceived as merely going to heaven, but it also concerns how we live life in the here and now. If you have read the gospel accounts of Jesus's life and teachings, you will be struck by how infrequently he speaks of the afterlife. This isn't an argument. I mean, it doesn't matter. See, here's the deal.
0: It doesn't matter how many times Jesus speaks regarding a particular doctrine or thing. This is no way of determining truth. If Jesus only mentioned hell once and did so clearly and unequivocally, if he only taught
7: eternal punishment once, it stands. Barely at all. In fact, this is true for the entire Bible. The stuff that happens after death is simply not talked about much relative to just about any other major theme. That is, again, you don't
0: take any particular doctrines and weigh them in the balance. How many times is this doctrine talked about? Well, we got, we got money talked about this many times. We got sex talked about this time, many times. The Trinity talked about kind of sort of in this many ways. And well, I guess based upon this, I mean, it, seriously, you don't determine the truthfulness of a particular doctrine based
7: upon the weight, the collective weight of the verses after you cut them up. It's not to say that the Bible does not affirm life after death. It certainly does. It just does not. And the Bible affirms eternal punishment, which Rob Bell denies. Not something that is spoken about a whole lot, and especially not by Jesus. Well, you may ask, if Jesus does not speak much of life after death, then what is he doing? That's not a very good evangelism strategy, Jesus. How are you going to get people to sign their commitment cards? straw man argument. Do you know what Jesus talks about more than anything else? Going to heaven or hell? No. How awesome he is? No. Money? A close second. The number one topic in terms of frequency that Jesus speaks about in the four gospels is the kingdom of God. Well, then he does speak about the afterlife, you may say. After all, the kingdom of God is heaven. It's where God lives. It's God's hizzy that we will all move into soon and very soon. (laughs) So when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about where Christians go after they die, if they intellectually assent to the right doctrine, right? Nope. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he is not talking By the way, the Bible doesn't
0: teach... That you are saved by intellectually assenting to the right doctrine. That is a mischaracterization and a bad one at that. Okay, let's talk about the importance of doctrine for a minute. Okay, doctrine is nothing more than a fancy word for teaching. Okay, that's what it is. It's doctrine is teaching. So if I were to teach you that God is a big chicken. That he has humongous wings and that literally that passage that talks about, you know, God spreading his wings and gathering people as a as a chicken gathers her chicks. As a hen gathers her chicks. That means that God is a big chicken. Am I teaching you sound doctrine? No, I'm teaching you false doctrine and the false doctrine I'm teaching you is teaching you falsely about who God is. In other words, I've created a verbal idol, okay? Now, back in the day, idolaters actually went through the physical labor of cutting down a tree or getting a large stone and crafting an image of the God that they believed in, the God of their own making, okay? We, well, being lazy 21st century folks who don't spend a lot of time outdoors have lost well the the craftsmanship necessary to go through all the hassle of making idols the old fashioned way and so we do it a new way a kind of a more cleanly way of doing it if you if you would you don't even have to work up a sweat we create our idols verbally with words okay but see, the thing is, is that you're not saved whether or not you believe God is a chicken or not. or That's not how you're saved. It's not, it's, salvation is not mental assent to a particular doctrinal statement. Salve, in fact, if anything, sound biblical doctrine lays the framework about who God is and what he's revealed about himself. And I can tell you quite clearly, the devil believes all of that about God. The devil knows that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The devil knows that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. The devil knows that Jesus Christ died and rose again, that he literally walked on water, that he rose bodily from the grave. He know. The devil knows that Adam and Eve were actually created by God on the sixth day and were put to work in the Garden of Eden that God set up. Satan himself was there tempting Adam and Eve to sin and was successful in his endeavor. Satan knows all of that. He mentally assents to every bit of it. And yet Satan's not saved. Salvation is by grace through faith. Faith is trust in God. So here's the idea. Okay? This is the way the Reformers talked about it, and I think this is actually quite useful. When we talk about saving faith, we're not talking about mental assent to a set of propositions. That's not saving faith. Okay? That is actually, that that's, well, we call that demon's faith. So here's the idea. Faith, when we talk about faith, there is data. Okay? There is an assent that the data is true, but that's not saving faith. Okay? So we talk about notitia. A census and fiducia; those are the three terms that we talk about. We talk about saving faith. Notitia: this is data, knowledge. Uh, this is these are propositions that we, you know, we. So we say we you hand somebody a creed, if you would, and you say, "Here's what the Christian faith propositionally teaches." Okay, that uh, you know that God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried was descended into hell on the third day, rose again from, uh, from the dead according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the Lord, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so so what happens is the person can say, yep, I, I assent that these propositions are historically true, that Jesus truly was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, r- was raised from the dead, and that God created the heavens and the earth. Yep, I totally believe All of that to be correct. Is that person saved? No. Saving faith says that all of that was done for me. That it was done for me. And I'm trusting this good news is for my sins being forgiven and for my salvation. It's not assenting to particular things, but here's the deal. The reason why doctrine's important is because doctrine tells us who God is and what he's done. If somebody's teaching false doctrine, they've created a false God and a false gospel.
7: Talking about the afterlife. It is not a place that exists on some dimensional plane out there that our souls go to when we shake off this mortal coil. Well, what is it then? The best way to think about the kingdom of God is to not think of it as a place but to rather think of it as a happening. The kingdom of God happens. It happens here. It happens there. It happens whenever the Holy Spirit strikes. It happens whenever God's will is done. Whenever we love God with all that we are and love neighbor as ourselves. Then God, then the kingdom never comes. Notice he's defining God's
0: Kingdom comes when we love God with our whole heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, I'm sorry, but we're dead in trespasses and sins and we have a sinful nature, which basically makes it practically impossible for us to love God with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. No, the kingdom of God comes when we are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. The will of God is for us to
7: believe in the one whom he has sent. And in those moments, all creation is as it's meant to be. God is present. Things match up to their creator's intention. We live up to the image in which we were created, and we become fully human. That is when the kingdom of God happens. And Jesus said that he came to establish that kingdom here and now. The Bible often calls this eternal life. Not in the sense of forever lasting life, but in the sense of an eternal depth of life right now. <clears throat> this sounds like a guy who's been heavily influenced by uh, postmodernity and
0: Rob Bell's uh, theology. And I, I'm, I'm not buying it.
7: I, I'm just not buying it. Eternal life is quality rather than quantity of life. It is abundant life. It is holistic life. It is shalom. It is corporate peace that transcends understanding. I am sure that all of us have experienced the kingdom of God, and if you have your eyes and ears and hearts open... By that definition, I've never experienced it. ...you probably experience it often. However, unfortunately, it is hard to maintain the will of God very long, what with that whole sin thing getting in the way, and we are back to our humdrum lives where God is not present, where God's will is not done, and we are not living fully human lives. Which is every single day. The kingdom of God happens, and then it is gone, like the wind, like a flame. One day, Christians believe, Jesus will come again, and will... It's like it's, like it's an Elton John song. You lived your life like a candle in the wind. So God's kingdom is like a candle in the wind. There it goes. ...will establish the kingdom fully. It will not be temporary or partial... It will be totally present, and it will be for all time. But, for now, we live in the great in-between time, in between Jesus' establishment of the kingdom of God and its final consummation, presumably in 2012, if we are to believe certain interpretations of the Mesoamerican calendar. There will come a time when the kingdom will come in full, but that time is not yet. However, Jesus came to bring us life now and life more abundantly. And that is not something that we need to wait for. Go read John
0: 10.10 in context, please. It's one of the standard texts that
7: every American evangelical takes out of context. Or that we should wait for. Friends, salvation is following Jesus into the kingdom of God here and now. It is being freed from our sin here and now so that we can embrace our discipleship as people created in God's image, connected to all that life has for us here and now. It is being people of the Spirit so that we can be vitally directed and vivified and healed and inspired and empowered to be the people we are meant to be here and now. Does that continue after death? Of course it does. and even Yeah, but don't focus on that. No, we got to focus on the imminent, not the transcendent. Even more vibrant colors than we can see at the present time. But Jesus doesn't really talk about that very much because it is not our concern. God takes care of us now. Of course God is going to take care of us after we die. But today has enough worries of its own. We have work to do. We have the naked to clothe, the hungry to feed, the prisoners to visit.
0: We, we need to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Interesting, isn't it?
7: the thirsty to give water. We have widows and orphans to look after. We have blind who need sight and the lame who need to walk and demons that need to be cast out. We have sin to confront and prejudice to overcome and injustice to speak against. We have a gospel that needs to be holistically and strenuously and passionately preached to all people.
0: Hmm. Holistically. What does that mean, holistically? Apparently, uh, the gospel is some kind of a holistic thing that... Uh, it helps you embrace a
7: holistic life here and now. Hmm. We have worship to engage in, songs to sing, hands to raise, dances to dance, and tongues to speak. We have baptisms to pour, Eucharist to take, confessions to make, sin to forsake, and passion to awake. We have lots to do.
0: Yeah, the thing is, is that Jesus, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus has done all this perfectly for us.
5: Hm.
7: Do we really have time or need to worry about if God is going to take care of us after we die? And will worrying and arguing about it make any difference anyway? Yeah, I mean, why even talk about heaven? I mean, we've got,
0: we've got, what did he say, the naked to feed and the clothed and, uh uh-huh, yeah. Come on, let's get busy with the social gospel and stop arguing about um, heaven and hell and, and doctrine and theology and stuff like that. Weird argument, don't you think? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Read the text, Professor. It says, "Why do you worry about these things? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the diakasune of Him, His. It's per, it's possessive, and all these things will be. What does it mean to seek God's righteousness? Hmm." Does that mean to try harder to be more like God? Or is it what the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3? I consider all of these to be rubbish. Actually, the term is quite more graphic than that. So that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from from the law, but the righteousness that is by faith,
7: Jesus says. And all that other stuff will be given later. Look, I am super glad to be able to be in communion with God after I die, whatever that's going to look like. And I am super glad to be in communion with all of you after I die too. But to say that that is the sum total of salvation is to either ignore Scripture. Who says it's the sum total of salvation? That, again, is a complete canard. That is a red herring. It's not even a real argument. To ignore the Holy Spirit as it strikes up the kingdom of God around us or to ignore the world that is so in need of more of that kingdom. So I'm glad for this book, because it makes bold and needed claim that salvation is something that starts right now and extends into eternity. It also makes bold claims that
0: God's eternal wrath and eternal punishment uh, apparently are a misunderstanding of God's character and not in line with it, despite the fact that that's what Jesus revealed.
7: Now, I can't go along with all the claims of the book, There are problems there. He speculates a lot on what the afterlife looks like after telling people they shouldn't speculate. He is provocatively vague when he doesn't need to be and asserts certain opinions as if they were established fact. Despite his claims of holistic salvation, he tends to define it rather individualistically. He pulls scripture and historical quotes out of context and he conveniently skirts over other scripture and important theological claims of our historic faith. Yeah, I think those are pretty big deals, don't you? And I don't think that he even properly defines many terms, including love or wins. <laughs> or eternity. Aeneas. However, mostly, I want to say how happy I am that he understands and teaches and preaches a salvation that is here and now and not merely there and then. That would be unbiblical. Spiritually short-sighted, ethically childish, and evangelistically manipulative. We need to stop reductionist, reductionistically defining being saved as a get-into-heaven ticket. We need to get holistic. And when we talk about salvation, what are we being saved from?
0: Answer. Scripture reveals the soon-to-be-revealed
7: wrath of God. Read the epistle of Second Peter. Instead, we need to define being saved as entering into a followership of Jesus. Define being saved as being freed from the sins that keep us from the faith, hope, and love, from the justice, mercy, and humility that are meant to delineate our identities. We need to define being... You got any passages for that?
0: I mean, I'd I like to know about the passages that talk about the things that keep us and
7: delineate our identities and stuff like that. I don't recall any of those verses in the Bible. Being saved is corporately reflecting the image of God in our words and deeds and interactions and buying habits and in every nook and cranny of our lives.
0: Oh, Corporately uh,
7: reflecting the image of God in our buying habits. Got any verses for that? And we need to define being saved as being vessels and channels of the living Holy Spirit that wants to expand the kingdom of God more and more in us and with us and through us until that time when the whole world is accorded to the will of God.
0: Thanks. <laughs> Lecture number one. That guy sounds like, uh, well, he's kind of in the same liberal camp as um, Rob Bell.
2: Good afternoon. Some of my remarks are very similar to Dr. Lam- Langford's. I think it's because we like Bart.
0: Uh, And that explains everything. So a couple of the major professors are over there at uh, Seattle Pacific University and their School of Theology like Neo-Orthodoxy and Karl Barth.
2: Oh, good night. Uh, Maybe something else. Um, Given the repeated critical attacks toward Bell, I wish to sustain a line of evaluation that is positive or more accurately appreciative I appreciate.
0: So we're going to get an appreciative, um, an appreciative uh, review of Rob Bell's doctrine. Now, again, here's the deal. If he's teaching heresy, why on earth would we be doing an appreciative critique of his book? Hmm?
2: The Bell asked the question about heaven and hell. Why? Because I think those of us in the Christian Protestant evangelical camp tend to think we know more than what we really know. Either on rational or biblical grounds. Do we know that Gandhi is in hell? No, we don't. Do we know that Hitler is in hell? No, we don't. But we tend to act and talk as if these were known realities. And I think that that kind of certitude, a kind of certitude that fails to acknowledge its own tentativeness, does us. Was there
0: any reason to believe historically from the evidence that Hitler? repented of his genocide, was brought to repentance, and that he was forgiven for his sins and trusted that Jesus Christ, penal substitutionary death on the cross and bodily resurrection from the grave were for his sins to be forgiven and for his justification. Is there any evidence that would suggest that Hitler Believed that, and that's what happened to him in the moments before he he committed suicide in his bunker in Berlin. No. Therefore, based upon what the New Testament teaches us about those who perish eternally, um, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say, um. Good chance that Hitler's in hell. But if he isn't in hell, it's because we don't know about him being brought to repentance and the forgiveness of his sins. Gandhi, same thing. this more harm than good.
2: And not only in terms of spiritual harm, which it does do, it also
0: has a way of de-dignifying the other. And so... De-dignifying the other classic, classic category of liberal theology, the other. Dehumanizing ourselves. What do I mean?
2: One of the difficulties with heaven-hell questions is the effects
0: this has upon our politics. The way we interact with... Yeah, yeah, because when I think about heaven and hell, the first thing I think about is whether or not you're a Democrat or a Republican.
2: ...one another, both with those inside the fold and those outside of it. One could term it the politics of election. And
3: uh,
2: uh,
0: at this point, we've got two different
2: definitions going on here. And I think that on um, page three, he, he hits that uh, very uh, markedly. Have you ever heard people make claims about a select few being the chosen and then claim that they're not part of that group? Right. That's what we're talking about. If we operate with a kind of certainty regarding who's in and who's out, then epistemically, in our minds, we are the bouncers or gatekeepers of our own reality. We evaluate people as to who is worthy and who isn't, and so we call the shots. Now, where do we get off thinking that we can do this? I think part of it is because we think we have that kind of power, and we think we have this power because we think we have salvation. Salvation is ours, and so heaven is ours. Well, they ain't. We don't earn salvation, and we're not privileged in this arrangement on our own merits. Salvation is God's, and God's alone to give. And we have no business thinking we are bouncers of heaven. If we think that is the case, then I can't help but think this kind of thinking and behaving could lead to the eventual scenario but Lord, I thought I was your personal bouncer. I thought for sure we were tight and that we were going to hang at the club. To which Jesus would respond most likely, and who are you? That's my paraphrase of Matthew 7, uh, <laughs> verses 22 and 23, the Costello Living Translation. <laughs> if, if we start thinking salvation as our thing, something we have, then we have commodified it.
0: <clears throat> uh weird, you know, I just was reading in the Bible here and I'm not sure if I buy this Karl Barthian commodified theology here uh, or at least assertion. Listen to what John the disciple of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, the the apostle John wrote in his first epistle, John 1st John chapter 5 verse 13. This would be 1st John chapter 5 verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Hmm. I write these things so that you may know that you presently have eternal life. Or John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or John chapter 1, verse 12. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, they already have it, to become children of God. Huh. Apparently, Jesus and the apostle John, for sure, was into commodifying eternal life. We have made it into something we own. Some of my
2: students in the past have talked about salvation as an insurance policy. Well, they don't call it that. That would be scandalous and irreverent. But functionally, the way that they're describing it, uh, it's a pretty good deal. Uh, Something just in case we die or something like that. Salvation is not the greatest insurance policy ever conceived. Eternal security for a few words of confession here and now. That really isn't a bad deal. State Farm can't beat that. Maybe Geico can. <laughs> but that is not what salvation is, and that is not what
0: God's about. Please enlighten us, uh, Herr Professor, and I hope you use the Bible to back it up. If we think of salvation in terms of who's in
2: and who's out, then that is going to affect us, especially since we think we're in, and that means as we normally construe it, the majority of the world is out. And so that is what I appreciate about Bell's book. He raises the question about the way we think about these matters, namely heaven and hell, how we think about it affects us in the moment in terms of how we look at the other, both Christian and non-Christian, how we look at God's creation and by implication how we look at ourselves. Do I agree with everything Bell says? No. But I don't agree with everything my parents believe, or my colleagues believe, or my wife believes. Uniformity in theology... Who cares? The question is, what is the truth? Theological opinion is a lost cause. Never happened, never will. And that's perfectly fine because it's overrated. One person does not have God perfectly defined. Many have thought that they did. And let's just say God has a great sense of humor. Given our context, we have to press Bell and Bell's arguments in terms of their direction. Is this something coming from the culture into church discourse?
0: Yeah. Or is this something from the church to the wider culture? The question is, is this coming from the Bible? Is this based upon sound exegesis of the biblical text?
2: In both instances, the connection is being sought, and it should be. But the direction is important. And although it is hard to pin down, we have to ask this question. If the culture is determining inordinately the lens by which we engage the scriptures and church tradition, then, well, what do you know? What will come out is something agreeable to that culture. Christianity will come off quite rational and acceptable, given the plausibility structures of a given rationality and morality uh, of a specific context. Bell's proposal sounds really plausible, and we have to be thrilled by that, and deeply worried all the same but if the direction is more so that the church is moving to the culture then plenty of the culture will be both affirmed and denied and this is where i take exceptions to the exception to the book's title love doesn't win love is not a big tub of goo that makes everybody happy and giggly there is no such thing as this described in both scripture and church tradition love is not simply a principle and it's not something that excludes judgment and truth. Love is not God. But God is love. And it is from God's self-revelation of God's history with the people that we see this love on display. And we have to see it on display because left to ourselves, love could be any number of things. How are we going to discriminate uh, different kinds of loves based strictly on our feelings? It could be anything, including a tub of goo. Love is not a feeling.
0: Feelings come and go. Ask a couple who are about to... One of the things that's driving me nuts about this particular lecture is, is that I'm hearing philosophy. I'm not really hearing theology. If you're going to do theology. The, this, these are words of God. Uh, you need to be in God's word. Uh, you, you, you need to actually talk about what does the revealed text as given to us by God, the Holy Spirit, reveal in these matters
2: to get married, how they define love, and ask a couple that's been married for 40 years what love is, and I bet the answers will be quite different. Love ain't a feeling, and we don't necessarily recognize it when it's there. So love doesn't win. That doesn't make any sense, because love is not a thing. However, God is love, and God in a certain way does win. And if God wins, then salvation is God's, and God's to give, and we can live in this mystery and still be assured of the gospel's truthfulness. In fact, I think that is part of the difficulty for many folks with this book. They think that because heaven and hell are opened up for discussion and negotiation, that everything is thrown asunder, that the lack of consequences as we conceive them throws everything into question.
0: No, uh, no, 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 no. Let, let me give you, a, let me give you a, a biblical analogy that makes sense, okay? If you've read the, uh, the story of the Exodus and the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness— Over and over again, this weird thing happens where the people of Israel are somehow questioning that God, is the the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Now the question that immediately comes up is, how on earth is the, the children of Israel who saw the Red Sea parted Experienced the plagues and saw the result of uh, the plagues and the locusts and all that. kind of, How is it that it's an open question to them that the that the God who is with them in the camp is the one who actually led them out of Egypt? How is that an open question? It, you know, and see this. <laughs> it, it, the, the answer is it's not an open question. It's not an open question at all. It's their sinful rebellion and unbelief against God that is causing them to make it an open question. Whether or not God is going to come again, Christ is going to come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, has not been an open question in Christianity. Why? Because Jesus Christ himself spoke so plainly and clearly about this, and so did his apostles. And as a result of it, the church has always confessed that Jesus Christ is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And if you do not believe this, then you risk the fires of eternal hell and punishment. Don't believe me? May I suggest that you read the Athanasian Creed? In fact, let me read to you what the church put together in the Athanasian Creed. What is it, the 5th century? Um, Yeah, here we go. Let me read this for you. This was written against the Arian heresy. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will, without doubt, perish eternally. Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. The tail end of the Athanasian Creed, by the way, that's the front end of it, reads this way. At... His coming, Jesus' coming, all people will rise again with their bodies, give an account considering their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Hmm. The church has never had eternal life and eternal damnation be an open question. It's always been a closed issue because God's revelation in his word is so clear on this. So Rob Bell turning it into, quote, an open question is for him to go against what God's word so clearly teaches and to go against what the church has confessed from the beginning. Read the church's creeds. Which again leads us to the other question, and what is salvation?
2: Salvation is not about heaven and it's not about hell
0: it's not about great why don't you open up the bible and start showing us exegetically what it is then being with but it is about being with and
2: conform to god because god is the source of truth goodness and beauty it is participatory not
0: transactional Great, then why does it say that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that we are redeemed? By the way, redemption is a transaction term. Why don't you explain to us all the fineries of, the, of those vocabulary words found in the Bible then? Salvation is the process of learning who this God is,
2: of trusting this God, and becoming like this God as we grow to love this God. Salvation is an account and state of how to live. Here and now, and this
0: is where I have to agree with my colleague. Here we go again. Uh, the, the, the transcendent, the eternal is replaced with the imminent. colleague, Dr. Langford, if the only
2: thing that keeps us attached to this thing called Christianity is the afterlife consequences, then that account of Christianity is warped. It's reductionistic because it's consequentialist.
0: Which Who is reducing Christianity? Who is reducing it? I mean, just because you confess that eternal life is eternal life and it's in the presence of God and that it's eternal and eternal damnation is eternal and it's in the lake of fire and it's eternal is not reductionistic. That's just confessing what God has revealed it to be. It turns out
2: it's simply our capitalistic or maybe even Skinnerian logic all over again. In other words, salvation, as most of the rest of our lives, is all about us and what we get out of it. So I thank God for Rob Bell and for folks like him because they raise questions to make us think of forcing us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. I find it lamentable that so many people have opinions about this book without giving the guy a fair hearing or a reading. We have to ask, why are people getting so heated? Could it be because he's on to something?
0: Could it be because he's teaching heresy and he's directly contradicting God's word?
2: Could it be because the way we negotiate salvation is, in fact, a little too comfortable
0: and too reassuring? Could it be that he's completely shaking up uh, our understanding of what the gospel is, and as a result of it, the biblical gospel no longer stands, and what we believe, teach, and confess is being brought into question when it's so clear what God teaches on this matter? Isn't it, in fact, destabilizing that? We aren't the bouncers and that we are just as dependent on God's grace as... The I've b- never said I'm the bouncer. I can tell you what God's word teaches so clearly and what the church has confessed. And what Rob Bell teaches contradicts that. ...the next person, be that Gandhi or Hitler.
2: Yes, that is destabilizing. And you know what? You can't tell me from reading Isaiah 6 that being in God's presence is a tub of goo. So I find it also lamentable that theological diversity is not tolerated... With
0: theological diversity. You think the early church uh, welcomed theological diversity? You ever read uh, the, church is, the church and their handling of the uh, Pelagian heresy? Oh man, the church was all over that as soon as it came out and declared Pelagius to be a heretic like ASAP and his doctrine to be anathema. The early church didn't, it, it didn't embrace theological diversity. They considered theological diversity to be a tool of the devil and instead wanted to get back to teaching the, what is the truth, and they put heretics out of the church and condemned their doctrine as from the devil and anathematized it. Yeah, the early church wasn't into theological diversity. When It is of the kind
2: that of attempts to be scripturally, historically, and theologically based. We ought to debate this work significantly. But I think there is greater merit than the force of the question it raises, because then that conversation can go beyond a pastor's book to the realm of how we put together the
0: faith, and more importantly, how we live it. In fact, it pushes a lot. We don't live the faith; we believe it. Pistuo and pistis are not things; are not verbs that we do in that sense. It's not something we live. Object so as
2: to question our tendencies to commodify the faith. The faith is not something we have. The faith is something that has us. Salvation is not about us. It is about God, the God of Israel, and displaying the life and work of Jesus. The Christian life... Who died for us. Life is not about reaching heaven and escaping hell. It is about being conformed to the character and splendor of God. And to me... Then why did the Apostle Peter talk about fleeing the wrath to come? Hmm? To me, that kind of logic makes it all the more worth sharing because it endures. It's not about consequences or, as Wesley would put it, the faith of a servant. This faith stuff, when it matures, is about the faith of a child and pushing it further uh, with a Johannine witness. At this point, you are literally mixing theological categories. In mind, the faith of a friend. And after I read this book, I read Gregory of Nyssa's The Life of Moses. Great book. I would recommend uh, you all to read it. There's a quote here. Uh, fourth century. Uh, so, church father. This is true perfection. Not to avoid a wicked life because like slaves we are servilely fear. We servilely fear punishment. Nor to do good because we hope for rewards as if cashing in on the virtuous life by some.
0: Right. Gregory of Nyssa here at this point is talking about the, what, salvation is by grace through faith. It is not by works of the law. What he's describing there is the attitude of somebody who fears God's judgment because they sin or believes that they earn God's reward because been, they've been a good boy. That's a complete misunderstanding of law and gospel and contrary to what the Bible teaches and actually is more akin to the, uh, the Galatian heresy. And this is picking up on what true saving faith is.
2: A um, business-like and contractual arrangement. On the contrary... Disregarding all those things for which we hope and which we have been reserved by promise, we regard falling from God's friendship as the only thing dreadful. And we consider becoming God's friend
0: the only thing worthy of honor and desire. And how do we become God's friends? Is it by us being obedient to God's law or believing that Jesus kept the law perfectly for us and was pierced for our transgressions? Bruise for our iniquities, and that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. This, as I have said, is the perfection
2: of life. If we find it compelling, then the consequences don't matter. I don't want heaven. I want God. Because where God is, that is definitely heaven, and that definitely is not hell. And that is more than enough. Thank
0: you. It's like, it's like they purposely are avoiding the biblical categories here..
3: And let's start but not off least. with a quote: "Unending torment speaks to me of sadism, not justice. It is a doctrine that I do not know how to preach without negating the loveliness and glory of God." I believe that endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a terrible blot on her presentation of the gospel. I should indeed be happy if, before I die, I could help in sweeping it away. End quote. How does this quote strike you? Do you resonate with it? Do you feel it is too liberal? These are not the words of Rob Bell but a very conservative British scholar named John Wenham of a previous generation who believed in the inerrancy and full truth of Scripture. Before, we talk, before I talk about Rob Bell, I want to point out that what Bell is doing is neither patently liberal nor especially innovative. While readers may find his thinking faulty, I think he is asking age-old questions that need refreshed and revisited in every generation. As some of us have pointed out already, Bell's One of Bell's major questions is, does God get what God wants? Bell asked this on a number of occasions. The point he is making, I think, is that we should wonder what the actual purpose is of anyone suffering in hell. It's not rehabilitation. It is just endless punishment. I think this is a good question because it is driven by mission. God has a plan. What I find limited is Bell's answer. Yes, he says, He will ultimately reconcile all things. According to Bell, he does get what he wants because finally, love wins. To me, there's an interesting hyper-deterministic angle here. However, humans choose in this life to set their paths, as in a chess game in the end, when the time is right, God will just pick up pieces and move them around until he wins. Bell cites a number of passages in support of God's love for his creatures, such as Psalm 145. He never cites verse, which is very frustrating. But he writes uh, from Psalm 145, The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. Those are very comforting words. If you keep going in the Psalm of 21 verses, it goes on to say, The Lord watches over all who he loves, but the wicked he will destroy. Uh Uh-oh. It is not so much that Bell is flat out wrong in his description of pastures where the Lord is attentive in love to all his creatures. It is that we have a justice impulse that runs parallel to this compassion one. So, does God get what he wants? I presume so, but really all we know is that he is powerful enough to do what he wants. And we recognize that we may not fully understand how he gets what he wants.
4: Yeah,
0: uh,
3: come on, let's let's take the logical understanding, the correct
0: understanding of that passage. Does God get what he wants? Yes. And here's the thing, that passage makes it clear that part of what God wants is justice. Yeah. Those who persist in sin and unbelief refuse to be forgiven. God wants to give them justice. Does God get what he
3: wants? This raises a second question that Bell is interested in. Does God not promise a comprehensive restoration of all things? Bell cites verse after verse from Lamentations, Hosea, Zephaniah, Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, Micah, all referring to restoration. I will restore them, essentially, because I have compassion on them. I know this is a short book and Bell can't say everything, but when it comes to the prophets... The focus is on God and his relationship, not with the world per se, but with his covenantal people in particular. Good point. If he shows love here, it is covenantal love. If he shows compassion, it is because that responsibility to be righteous is demanded by the covenant he made with Israel. For example, when Israel's is in Egypt suffering under slavery and they cry out, what does Exodus 2.24 say? Quote, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." End quote. In the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, God acts in compassion to vindicate his covenant. In another text, though, Bell does pick up on a universalizing statement in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, "When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself." I will admit that sounds a lot like where Bell wants to go. And yet Bell again downplays the parallel judgment stream that we see, for example, in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now notice,
0: out of the three theology profs, this is the only one who's really rigorously taking Bell's arguments to task biblically.
3: Now, when theological debates happen, we cynics sometimes call this text trading. I like these texts. No, these texts are better. I don't want to do that. I want to accept the paradox and complexity of the parallel streams of God's reconciling, compassionate nature and the just and justice driven attitude that judges the one that rejects Jesus. When we look at a text like John 3.36, where it refers to eternal life, We presume that the wrath of God involves eternal punishment, as we find in Matthew 25, where those wicked, selfish hypocrites will, quote, "...go away into eternal punishment." That leads us to our third question. Does eternal in the New Testament mean forever and ever and ever? The Greek New Testament word that Bell likes to talk about is ionios. What does it mean in texts about eternal fire or eternal punishment? Bell says it doesn't mean forever, it can mean a long time. Is Bell right? Yes and no. Words have denotation, the dictionary meaning, and connotation, how we actually end up using the word. Yep, this is right. Keeping that in mind, sometimes the word means forever and ever and ever, and sometimes it just means a long time. So what does it mean in the hell text? Unfortunately, context is the only way to know, and it's clearly in dispute. What we can say about hell is one, it is really, really bad. Two, it comes into play especially on a judgment day. And three, the biblical imagery of hell and heaven are so symbol laden, you cannot systematize it. Put other. Okay, this is a cop out. You are talking about Ioneos, okay?
0: Matthew 25. Watch the parallel streams here, and the Greek word Ioneos is used parallelly. Okay, we're going to pick up at the tail end of Jesus' uh, telling of what is going to happen to the sheep and the goats, okay? The goats and the sheep are separated. The sheep on the right, goats on the left. The judgment's already taking place, okay? He tells the sheep, come, you who are blessed of my Father, okay? Uh, you know, I was naked, you clothed me. Hungry, you gave me something to eat. And, they, and the sheep go, really? When did we do that? You know, and, and then he, you know, it's so... He then turns to the goats, and he says to them, verse 41, Matthew twenty-five, forty-one. then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Do you think that, that Jesus here, by the way, is um, just t- putting the uh, Greek word ionios there, the adjective eternal, in front of fire, uh, just for the sake of show, why is he modifying the noun fire with the Greek word "ionios"? That you know, why the eternal fire? Hmm. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me, and you did not visit me. Then they will all answer, saying, "Lord." When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, "Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me." And these, these the goats, will go away into eternal punishment. Okay, um, and but the righteous into. Eternal life. Okay, so uh, so now this kind of begs the question. Okay, so we've got the the Greek phrase Koloson Ionion running parallel with Zoane Ionion. Okay, so you got Koloson Ionion that's punishment eternal, and Zoane uh, Ionion life eternal. Now, why on earth would Jesus describe Zoe and Colossen as being eternal? Was his intention to say that you're going to go into a punishment that's going to last for a very long time, it's going to seem like an eternity, but you're really going to go to life that's going to last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Notice that the two go hand in hand. They run parallel to each other. To deny that punishment here is eternal also requires you grammatically to deny that life is eternal. And yet, the Scriptures make it perfectly clear that those who believe in Christ will never perish. That's another way of describing eternal life as going on forever and ever and ever. Why did Jesus talk about into the fire eternal? Hmm. I mean, if you're not going to be there for eternity, what's the whole point of making it, talking about the fire that burns eternally? Hmm? Yeah, this, this professor was doing well for a minute here. He was talking about the Greek word ionios, but he ha- he's kind of equivocating and
3: not really doing what he should be doing. Otherwise, the Bible never tells us what hell is, only what it is like. And it ain't good. Forever? A long, long time? I don't think the Bible is really trying to answer that question. That's good news for what, the, what Bell denies, but bad news for what he guesses is right. So finally, does love win? This is, I think, the wrong question. Can love win without everyone going to heaven? Has an unrequited lover failed? I think Bell is right to focus on love as a primary attribute of God's character, but in some ways he is so obsessed with the end of time, I think he is missing a key piece of the middle of time now. Bell wants to say, I think, God wants to pour out his love on you, and I can't imagine sending people to hell for eternity moves his divine plan forward. The implication is that there may be an opportunity when you die or after to still be a part of the plan. In this scenario, the conversation is between God and one person. However, God has set up his plan right now that he uses the church, his body, to bring people to God, to spread God's love. But allowing the flow of God's love to come after the end of the world as we know it is to subordinate the importance of the church as the instrument of relating God's love in Christ to the world. So Paul writes, How are they to believe in one whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? Romans 10.14 The answer is, they can't. Not without the church as evangelist, church as bringer of good news. This is the time of decision, come what may. I don't know Bell is completely wrong, but I know that he is building his argument on a lot of guesswork. We must work from the clearest parts of Scripture. Yeah, that should clue you in that he's
0: wrong, okay? Christians are not to build their theology on a whole lot of guesswork. If God hasn't revealed it, then we don't build anything on it. If God has revealed it, revealed it in his word, we are to believe it and confess it and proclaim it not question it and try to see if we can reinterpret it or reimagine it in such a way that 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 shaves off some of the rougher edges and makes it so it's a little bit more polite to
3: talk about in civilized company. Sure. Again, that reminds us, uh, my colleague here quoted Gregory of Nyssa, I'm going to quote the theologian Rich Mullins, to say that the time is short just means the time is now. Or perhaps more appropriately quoting Hebrews 4.7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or the Apostle Paul, see, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. Thank you.
0: So there you have it. Uh, Three of the uh, the theology profs there at Seattle Pacific University. One sounds like he's postmodern liberal. The other is a neo-orthodox Bartine, and the other guy sounds like you're kind of grassroots, you know, even conservative evangelical type. And uh, although they, you know, handled the uh, discussion to differing degrees of, of um, well, let's say um, excellence, <clears throat> none of them really achieved that status. Um, there were some very troubling things said by these theology professors, who, by the way, are shaping and forming the minds of maybe one of your college students. Think about it. All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. If you could have mercy on us during these summer months, they have been challenging. Uh, That's kind of an understatement. Uh, You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and uh, support us, and thank you in advance for your support. So what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. and in there, Pi Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ this vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins.
7: Amen.